spiritual journey, I want to hear from those who have taken this path before me. This podcast focuses on them and listening to their stories, uninterrupted. My name is Hiba Masood, and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala along that journey. This special quarantine episode features my mom, my very first teacher and biggest inspiration. She takes us through the journey of her life as one of the first Muslims to attend a well-known prep school in Toronto going on to Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism, and eventually working for the Chicago Tribune for 15 years. She talks about this immense feeling of protection from Allah subhanahu wa while her father was in and out of spinal surgery as a foreign correspondent in Afghanistan and Pakistan in reporting battles with the mayor of Chicago and just throughout her everyday life. She reflects on the powerful tafsir given by Sheikh Amin Khulwadi at Dar al-Qasim in Chicago and how it set her on a new phase in life, one without journalism. Listen as she shares the mother-to-daughter wisdoms from her remarkable life. Bismillah. Assalamualaikum to the listeners of Hippa's podcast. Um, I wanted to actually start by apologizing first. Um, I'm not a scholar by any means, and um, I've agreed to do this because of the coronavirus and the fact that Hiba and I are quarantined together. So, sorry, this is not your typical podcast, and I hope that whatever I say has some value um, and people can learn some things from my experiences and maybe it helps them somehow in terms of their own journeys to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, so growing up, um, I was first generation. Actually, I was born in London, but my family, when I was five years old, we moved to Toronto, to Canada. And so I was the first generation for the longest time. I was the only child for my parents. Um, my dad was an accountant, and my mom worked in the financial industry and insurance. And um, very early on, my parents got involved in a small mosque in the downtown area. It was called Jami Masjid. It still exists today. It's a very unique mosque. Um, and it was a nice place where, you know, it was, it was a mix of cultures because the community was so young at that time. I would say this is the uh, mid to late 1970s that um, it was such a mixture of people. So there were Arabs and there were South Asians and there were converts, and people from the Caribbean who had converted. Um, or from Guyana and Trinidad and Tobago, who were always Muslim. So it was just a really nice mixture of different races within that community. And so my parents put me in Sunday classes, and um, we would go to various halakhas um, on the weekend. And so I, f- I feel like it was a pretty traditional um, Islamic family. My my mother did not wear the hijab, um, but, you know, we were Everybody was praying five times a day, and we were trying to um, meet the fard um, that was that was essential within the family. Um, and then at some point, my parents switched. They were initially with Ikna, and I think that was just a natural affiliation because of they, they both spoke Urdu. Um, so that 
it was a natural affiliation where they were initially part of ICNA, but then at some point, because I was growing up, they felt as though ISNA was better, um, especially for children and for youth um, in terms of their programming. So I grew, I grew up in the world of ISNA, um, where basically we had conferences, and there was MINA, and there was MSAs, and um, I was pretty involved in those from a pretty young age. And the most profound, the two memories that I have from my life from, from those days within ISNA is one that whenever we would go to conferences, the, um, the speakers at the time would put out a call for more Muslim journalists. And they would talk about how women, um, women need to get an education and women need to be empowered and they need to, they need to help sort of um, change the view of Muslims in the world. And as I said, they, there was this call out for more Muslim journalists. And so I remember that sort of sticking in my head. Um, the other thing that I remember was, again, around this time, um, me starting to wear the hijab. Um, I think it was like a Christmas ISNA conference that I attended. And they were talking a lot about the hijab. And I decided that I was going to start. And I just wasn't sure. Um, and so we went to visit one of my friends who had met at the ISNA conference. Our dads knew each other. And this is Zarka Ali Nawaz, who goes on to um, produce her own show. Little Mosque on the Prairie. Little Mosque on the Prairie, which some of you may know. They're definitely the Canadians will know. And um, so we go to visit Zarka's house, and I tell her about this desire to wear the hijab. And Zarka at the time was probably one of the only women, young girls, um, in the Muslim community who was wearing a hijab at the time. And so I go and we, you know, we're up late and we're talking and I tell her that I want to start, but I'm so scared and I don't know what, what it will be like, what the community will say, what my school will say, what my friends would say. And Zarka says, Noreen, you're thinking, you're overthinking this. You just need to start. And again, that made such an impact in my in my young brain, um, I decided like that day as we were driving home from Zarka's house, I told my parents that the next day I would start wearing a hijab. And at that time, I didn't even have like a scarf. All we had were like those Pakistani chadars. And so I remember when I would go to school, I would go in a chadar. Like it, it was to a point where my mom had to have somebody sew scarves for me much later because there were no scarves around. Um, can you just, just to backtrack a little bit, um... Can you just talk about the school environment growing up? You you spent your first few years in Pakistan. You started school not speaking a lot of English, as I remember correctly. And then, but how that progressed because you eventually went to a private school, and what kind of that environment was like of you as like the only Muslim in this private school. So um, yeah, so I was born in London when I was two years old. My mom. Um, took me back to Pakistan, to Karachi, and um, my grandma was living in Karachi at the time, and she wanted my grandma to raise me um, because my mom was working in London. It was difficult in terms of acquiring a babysitter and paying for a babysitter as well as taking care of me, and she felt as though my grandma um, would sort of provide the nurturing that I needed, and so she took me back to Pakistan, and I, I was there for three years, from two, I think, to the age of when I came back. And that meant two things. One, in terms of my own um, relationship with my grandma, my nani, I was very, very close to her. I almost 
saw her as my mom because, you know, in those early years, she raised me. Um, and, you know, much later she moves to Chicago and we, as, as I'm growing up, she becomes a very influential person in my life. Um, but anyway, so I, I was there until the age of five and then I come back. We, we moved back. I moved back to London first and then my family decided that we were going to move to Canada. So we moved to Canada. Um, and we're in a neighborhood, which again, if you know, in Toronto, it's called like the beaches area. It's very white. It's very conservative. And again, my early memories is that I probably couldn't speak much of English and, um, and I was in uh, first grade and I would think I was walking home from school and this kid ran up to me and pulled, I had like one of those gold hoop earrings. He pulled my earring, my ear, my ear bled. And of course he called me Packy. And this was the first time I had ever heard a racist comment. And I remember I was just stunned. And I don't know if it was the Packy term or it was the bleeding ear, but I remember like I, I went home crying. Um, um, so those are like, that's like my early memory of racism but I think the thing that really I think everybody is touched by racism in some way or another if you're a person of color um, I think that's just natural but I think you have two ways of dealing with it one way is that you say to yourself I'm not going to let this be an obstruction and then you fight against it and you try to be the best that you can be and you try to to be the best that you can be in a world that is not largely minority. Um, or then the other way is to sort of always use it and have a defeatist mentality that, you know, it's because this person's racist that I wasn't able to go ahead. And I think I have always sort of taken like the former route. And I think it's helped me um, because I can see racism. I can hear it, but it's whether I choose to acknowledge it. And, um, so, uh, speaking of that, so then after my, um, elementary years, we moved into a very, from the, from the beaches neighborhood, we moved into like the St. Clair Dufferin area, which was very largely Italian and Portuguese. And I went to school there. I did really well. And, um, very early on, I knew that I wanted to be challenged academically. And so my mom, my parents, um, they were not wealthy. They were struggling. Um, and But somehow, somebody at my mom's work told her about this school. It was one of the best schools, um, best private schools in Toronto. And my mom um, asked me if I'd be interested. And, I, you know, my eyes, of course, popped. One, because it was all girls. And I loved the idea of being in an all-girls school. Um, two, because academically it was the best. So it was, like, academically challenging for me. And so I loved the idea. And so my, my mom, and this is the other thing that you have to always sort of look at in life. Nothing should ever stop you because, you know, specifically, you know, for, for example, in this case, this was a private school. The, um, the fees, the tuition for this private school was astronomical. There was no way my parents could afford it. Um, but what happened was that my mom and the person at work who knew her, who was an alum, spoke to the principal and they worked out this way by which I was able to go to the school with basically pretty much full scholarship. My parents only paid like a few thousand dollars and it was, it was affordable for them. And for me, I was able to get this great academic education. So I say this story to say that just because something seems insurmountable, 
doesn't mean that it should stop you from trying. You should always um, try to see if there's a way that you can still have that opportunity. Um, and I feel like that school, it was called Branksome Hall School, it was in Toronto, I feel like that sort of molded me. Um, one, what it did is, as a young woman, it empowered me. Um, it, I was in a setting where I was basically taught that there was nothing that I could, couldn't do as a, as a young woman and that I should strive for the best. And so that meant that I was reading everything that I could read. I was trying everything that I could try. This was an opportunity that was handed to me um, by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and by other people, including my parents, who took this chance on me, and I was going to make the most of it. Um, that education, I, I think, um, ultimately helped me in terms of my later um, academic years and again later on when I became a journalist because it was such a well-rounded education and it meant that I was able to uh, work in a world that most people in my background have not worked in and yet at the same time I was able to excel because of my academic background and my and, and the education that I received at Brinksome. So your last year at Brinksome was um, well, it was chaotic. Um, can you just talk a little bit about what happened with your father and how that shaped uh, future years? Yeah, I mean, I. So what, what's what's important in with this is that with every gift you get some challenges, and so bring some was a gift that was given to me um, to acquire a great education, but at the same time, you know, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala also had other lessons that he was trying to teach me and my family. And um, and so in my final year of high school, um, which was supposed to be the point at which I was trying, like my grades actually mattered. And I should also preface this by saying that, like, I had this great opportunity for a great, well-rounded education, but my parents' main desire was that I would be a doctor. And so all this education was being primed for the fact that at one point I would be a doctor. And so, again, for those pre-med years, your last year of high school is really important. Your first at least two years of university are extremely important. And in this time, what happened was that um, my, my dad actually fell ill. He, um, he had been suffering from some, um, his neck was hurting a lot, and um, his back, and, um, it was basically his, his arthritis had started acting up and he went to see a surgeon and the surgeon said, we need to operate on you. This is our, these are your chances. I think it wasn't the odds were not that great, but my parents at the time decided that, um, no, he would go ahead and have surgery. Um, and, um, and so when my father came out of surgery, he bas basically the surgeon messed up. And when my father came out of surgery, he was paralyzed. Um, where when he went into surgery, he was not paralyzed. And then there were four different surgeries that were done over the course of two years to try to repair the mistakes of the first surgeon. And um, they did not fix the problem. And then my dad was um, paralyzed for the last 17 years uh, of his life. He was, he was a quadriplegic. So that last year of uh, high school was extremely challenging because it meant I was the eldest in a family of three kids, all girls, 
And it meant that I was my mom's main support system, um, emotional support system. And, um, and so we were spending vast amounts of time in the hospital with my father, both pre-surgery and after surgery. And as I mentioned, my dad was in and out of surgery for two years and then one year of our rehab. So he was still in the hospital for that, for that final year. And so, you know, our, our days meant that, you know, I would go to school and then from school, my mom and I would meet at the hospital and then somebody from the community, um, and it was a really, this is a great story too, but I'll get into it in, in a second. You know, somebody from the community would actually drive us home and, um, and then, you know, I, I would be so exhausted. I would just be able to do a little bit of homework and then I would go to sleep. And at Branksome, it was my final year. They did cut me some slack, but it meant that there were some foundational things that I did not acquire because I was focused on my father. And then when I came into the first two years of university, I was, uh, I was unable to catch up and, um, I survived. I passed, but a lot of my pre-med courses, I did not end up doing very well in. Um, it could also have been other things. I mean, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always have some, has something else that he has um, set you on a course of. And so it could have been that really my true passion was not medical sciences. And so maybe that's the reason why I wasn't doing well. But inevitably what, what ended up happening was that um, um, I, yeah, my parents wanted me to try for med school. I tried. I didn't get in. And um, then the extremely funny story is is that um, this is a lesson for everybody else out there that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to get something, that's the thing you get. No matter what your grades are, no matter what it is, if you want something and it's not meant for you, it doesn't come to you. So, for example, when I graduated from my undergrad, this is so embarrassing, but my GPA was 2.8. And it was 2.8 because I did a really crappy job in my calculus class. And calculus ended up being something that was primary in my pre-med years, both in organic chemistry and in physical, in the physical sciences. And so because I didn't have that foundation in um, calculus, it meant that I was basically like just getting by in my other classes. And so my GPA dropped dramatically. Um, I was unable to do medical school, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted me to be a journalist. I was interested in journalism. My best friend Zerka Nawaz enters the picture again. She also was encouraging me to become a journalist. She, she was doing journalism school here. And in the end, the school that I got into for my master's in journalism was one of the best journalism schools in the world. So that 2.8 GPA did not matter. When things are meant to happen for you, they happen for you. And so I went, ended up going to Northwestern the Medill School of Journalism, which is one of the best journalism schools um, with my crappy 2.8 GPA. Um, going back, I want to go backward a little bit and talk a little bit about my my dad and his illness. So it's it's so amazing. Like that experience, it taught me so much about how life can change so dramatically in the matter of minutes, how everything seems so stable. And yet it becomes so unstable. And I was very young at this time, right? When I'm going through this, I'm only 18 years old. Um, it made me extremely strong as a human being. And I, my, my dad always talked about how I had this himmat, this courage. And I think it was because this experience made me acquire that, that courage. 
because I was my mom's main emotional support system um, during this time. And it was extremely scary. Like the very first surgery, you know, we actually, actually thought that my dad had passed away because it was only supposed to last like four hours. And in the end, it ended up being the entire day because the surgeon had messed up. And then when the surgeon brought us into the room, the way he was talking, it sounded like my dad had passed away on, at the surgical table. And so it taught me a lot about how things can change so dramatically and how as a human being, you have to learn to adapt and you have to prioritize in that moment what's important to you and that you put your resources and your energy into the things that matter. And then you let other things, you work on the other things, but at that time you have to do the shuffle and you have to reprioritize and figure out what's most important, focus on that and then and then do the other things as well. The other thing, the other really important life lesson that I learned at this time was um, just, you know, like we, we were so lucky. We had these angels who came and helped us. They were, they were my mom's friends, close friends. But, it, you know, this was a trial that we went through as a family for three years. And it really helped us um, determine who were there for us and who were not there for us. And so there was a core group of Muslim families, not necessarily working in coordination, but who basically stepped up and helped us. So I mentioned this one um, uncle who would every day, every day after a busy day at work, before he even had dinner, he would come to the hospital, spend a few moments with my father, and then he would drive us home from the hospital. This was for two years. He did this every day for two years. Another auntie, my mom's friend, would always be cooking for us. My younger two sisters were really little at the time. She would always babysit without, like all, my mom just had to call and ask and she would be ready and willing. So willing to do it and always wanting to do what was right. And, um, and then there was this other auntie who every weekend, without fail, whether we asked for it or not, her kids would bring food for us and that food would last us the entire week. So I feel like it really showed me really early on that, um, when you need it most, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends you people to help you and he supports you, that you're going through this trial but there is support systems in place, and those support systems are sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But it also made me want to be like these people because they were just amazing human beings. Um, what were the biggest things that you learned from both of your parents? Um, I think if I look at my the lives of my parents, I think what I learned the most from them is just how things change in your life and how you have to learn to adapt. My dad went from being able to walk, being, you know, really well-known within the community and somebody who was always there to help people within the mosque and within, within his... Um, circle of friends to somebody who was who was bound by a wheelchair he had to change 
I mean, if, if, if we're talking about nafs, that, that's nafs right there. He had to change his perception of who he was and what his abilities were. And he had to come to terms with it. And I watched him struggle with that and overcome and finally be able to, um, to see the abilities that he still had and using those abilities, how he could continue being, um, con continue to be, continue to contribute to society, meaning the Muslim community, and also how he continued to be a father uh, to us kids. And again, he wasn't able to walk, but there was a lot of things he could still teach us, and we were still able to learn from him. So I was able to see from my father's life just how dramatically things could change and how you have to learn to be able to adapt and then recognize the blessings that you have and embrace them and use them for further good. From my mom, what I learned um, was one, the power of education. My mom always gave importance to education and she's the one that fought for me to be able to go to um, a really good school here in Toronto. If it wasn't for my mom fighting for me, I don't think I would have been able to go. My mom really strived hard, looked for like alternative ways. Like she's very creative in that sense. That when she's told no from one way, she's also, she's able to find other creative ways. And so in this case, it was finding somebody who could be an advocate and then together going in and finding, selling the school with the option of um, scholarship, which they didn't have until then, um, that they created for me. Yeah, so I was able to go, and then later on, my sisters were able to go because of that too, because they had those scholarships in place. So um, I learned that from her. I also learned, you know, from everything that my dad went through, my mom was always there. Like, that was always from the get-go, that was the most important thing is that even though my dad was ill, even though my dad was paraplegic, he was going to be home. And so for those three years, that was our major effort, was to get him home as soon as possible. And then everybody, like he was the center of attention. You know, everybody, we coordinated and we dropped whatever our own plans were to make sure that his needs were always met. And, you know, we were always thinking not just about the physical needs, but also like his emotional and social needs. I know in the early days when my dad, this happened to my dad, he would like not want to go out. He would just feel like he was such a, he would say that he was, um, that he, it was so difficult taking him places. And, but my mom and I, my mom, I watched my mom, like she really pushed hard to make sure that no, that he got out and that he had, um, he was still, he continued to be a social person um, despite what had happened to him. And she supported him. I mean, I, I sort of, saw that like her own sacrifices that she made to take care of him um okay so why journalism I, of all the careers you could pick so i think part of it was this call that i talked about with isna this need this desire for the muslim community to have more muslim journalists it just um it made me think that okay maybe this was something that i should do um i also was really into history and politics and writing. And so it just seemed like a natural fit. Um, really funny in, 
In fact, you know, when I was at Branksome, uh, a number of my history teachers um, said at certain points that you should actually think about journalism. And I, of course, just poo-pooed it and didn't, uh, paid no paid no attention to it because, again, I was on the path to pre-med. Um, so I was not thinking about any other careers. Um, and then, again, Zerka. You know, Zerka from Little Mosque on the Prairie um, was in journalism school, and she would tell me about stuff that she was studying or doing, and I admired that. And um, it seemed interesting to me. Um, and then, again, another friend of mine told me, Noreen, why don't you apply to Northwestern, um, the Medill School of Journalism? And again, this is just me. Like, I did, I did no research. Like, I did not realize what a big deal Medill was. Um, I, and I, I honestly, I, to this day, I don't know how, how I got in. Um, but it was, it was amazing. And it's, it's one of those things, again, when you're, given an opportunity by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you soak it all in. And if you can remember with journalism, I mean, there were no Muslim journalists that I knew of at the time um, in the States that I could just sort of ring, you know, call them up and ask them for help. Like I had no mentors, I had no guidance in terms of what was the right mm -hmm. way in. And um, so I had this great degree. I had no experience. And... Um, this really funny um, experience where um, I just right after I graduated, I went to some seminar where um, this managing editor from the Chicago Sun Times was speaking. He was black, and um, after and he he was talking about the lack of minorities in the newsroom. And then I remember after like the panel discussion, I just went up to him. I'm a big believer in doing things cold turkey. I just went up to him, and I said to him, I introduced myself said that I was in journalism and I was looking for, um, you know, a job as a reporter. And you talked a lot about the need for minorities in the newsroom and I'm interested. And he said to me, um, he said to me, send me your stuff, send me your clips. And I was so green. I was such a novice. I was such an idiot. You know, I just blurted out, well, how many clips do you need? Because I had none. Because by the time I grad, I, I only had my journalism degree from Northwestern, and we had only acquired a few clips in that time, maybe like eight. And I learned much later that you want to give them a vast, like you want to have like an, a robust portfolio. You want to give them at least good 10, 12 clips. I didn't even have that much. And I blurted it out. I told him. And then he just started laughing at me. It was so embarrassing. I was so embarrassed. But I did not let that get in my way. Um, even though I was mortified, I... Um, I decided that, okay, he says I need more clips. That's probably what I need to do is I need to get more clips. So I had to start literally at the bottom. I started working for like this daily newspaper in the suburbs where initially I was freelancing and covering like board meetings for them. Like in these small little dinky towns like nobody's even heard of to the point where there's one town, a bunch of old white people, and I go to cover, I think, a school board meeting or something, and the woman that's on the board, I went up to her to ask her a question. Maybe she's never met a brown person in her life, but whatever. I asked her a question, and she turns to me mid-question, and she says, oh, you speak English so well. And I just, like, looked at her with, like, this look of confusion because nobody had ever said that to me in Canada before, or brought that up to me in Canada before. But here in Chicago, in the suburbs of Chicago, someone is asking me about my English. And I said to her, yeah, I grew up here. So 
yeah, I mean, I, I shouldn't I have a problem with English. And then she's like, oh, okay. And then so we were able to move on to the next question. Anyway, so that was like one of these weird experiences. And much later, I found out that this these areas, these south suburban areas of Chicago were extremely white and um, racist communities, I guess we could call them. Uh, isolation, isolationist, isolated communities, isolated communities. There we go. Isolated communities. And so they may have not have had that much interaction with um, people of different colors. And so I'm going to excuse her for her question. Um, anyway, so I started like literally at the bottom. This is not even freelance. It's called like stringing. I was stringing at that time. And I was basically trying to acquire clips. But those clips then helped me get into um, this news service in Chicago, which was really, really unique. It was called the City News Bureau. And various people like Mike Royko, famous columnist for the Sun-Times and the Trib later, came out of the City News Bureau. It was, it was just really, really well known within the city. And what it allowed you to do is that you were a young reporter and you were stationed at various police stations um, around the city. There were five main area detective headquarters, so you were basically hanging out with the detectives. And so when stories broke, you were working with those detectives and you were feeding in uh, through wire services, you were feeding into the newsrooms. And so the real reporters or the veteran reporters would look at your copy and then realize, oh, this is a story or this is nothing. This is just a regular murder in Chicago. But but no, no, this one's a really good story. And then so you were basically the person that was gathering all that information and that would eventually lead to bigger, bigger stories. And then as you graduated from those police stations, the next level within City News Bureau was that you were actually working beats like City Hall. And I got to do this for, for a time period. Um, and some other beats where you were actually working with veteran reporters so you could actually learn from them, learn from their style of questions, what they were asking, what were the stories that they were pr producing. I was there almost a year and a half, two years, and it was amazing. It was an amazing experience. Um, in, in one of the cases, well, this is another funny story. I said I wasn't going to talk about race, but oh well, we've got three stories already. When did, huh? when did you say you were not going to talk about race? I said that I was able to overcome the idea. I was gonna I was able to overcome the idea of race. So before I got hired into City News Bureau, um, I think I was working as an intern at a magazine. And um the editor of the magazine called me in because I had put him down as a reference for City News Bureau. And the head of City News Bureau called him, asked him about me because he wanted to hire me, and then said to him, do you think Noreen would be good enough? Um, I'm worried that, you know, she looks like she's a religious Muslim. She's wearing her scarf. I'm worried that she's going to not be able to talk to police and that she's going to be more submissive, was the words that he used, that she would be more submissive and she would not be able to talk to police. And so this editor vouched for me. And who I was working with at the time, at the, at the time, it's like, no, Noreen will be great. Like, this is perfect for her. And that's how I got it. But it just goes to show you that when you go to apply for jobs like this, when you go in, there is certain stereotypes that, that people have about you. And you're basically put in a position where you have to break those stereotypes. Um, and so I knew going into this job that... And you were one of the first. I was one of the first. There was nobody... In Chicago, nobody was wearing hijab who was in journalism. 
I think I was one of the first Muslim reporters there. I remember, I can't remember. Um, but definitely I was recognizable because of my scarf. Uh, to the point where I would sometimes appear on crime scenes and other reporters would come and try to interview me because they thought I was part of the community. Duh. Like, on the why? South side? On the South Side. Yeah. Well, on the like... South Side, they would come and they'd, you know, start interviewing me because they thought I was part of the community. I'd be like, why are you interviewing me? I'm also, I've got a notebook in my hand. I've got a pen in my hand. I'm doing the same thing that you're doing. <laughs> I know. I got lost there. Where were we? <laughs> why journalism? Why so so then from from so city news bureau so one of the things that I did in city news bureau which helped me get my next job is that there was this um this gangbanger former gangbanger who was uh trying to run for alderman and claimed that he was no longer part of the gangster disciples and um was running for alderman and from the grapevine, we knew that his ties to gangster disciples was still pretty strong to the point where he was still going and visiting the head of the gangster disciples in prison um, on a regular basis. And so on the night of his um, initial victory, this was before the general elections. This is like the interim elections that happened. Um, on, on that night where he, where it looked like he was going to be able to move to the next level, he was like feeling very victorious, very proud of himself for like getting the votes that he had. And so I just, there was me and there's a bunch of other reporters there um, and I just kept pushing him and I kept pushing him and pushing him and pushing him to the point where at the end he admitted that he was part of the gangster disciples. And of course, like everybody exploded the next day, like the whole thing exploded um, the next day. And everybody that was like the main, that was the main news headline that this guy who was going to be now in the running for Alderman um, was still, you know, tied to the gangster disciples. So that was my claim to fame from this little city news bureau. Um, and that helped me get my next job, which was working for a suburban uh, paper called the Daily Herald in Chicago. It was in the western suburbs. So I covered communities, some of them rich, like Oak Brook, some of them not so rich, like Villa Park, Lombard, um, and Naperville. And initially when I went in, I was a police reporter. And um, when I got hired in this job, I was pregnant with you, which is um, another funny story because I didn't tell them I was pregnant with you. So for a long time, I was wearing a lot of baggy clothes and trying to hide the fact that I was pregnant. Basically, I was the police reporter, so that meant that I would go from town to town collecting like the daily police reports, looking through their police logs to see what incidents had happened. And I was also listening to the scanner to make sure that nothing major was happening. So I'd be driving around everywhere and I'd put like the police scanner. This is why I love true crime. Yeah, it probably is. And I would put the police scanner on my tummy and um, drive around. And that's, that's how I would hold the scanner so I could hear it properly as I was driving around from town to town. Yeah, that was crazy times. And so then I had you and then because I didn't tell them that I was pregnant at the time, it meant that I was on the police beat, which was like, police beat was 2 p.m. to 11 p.m., which was more like 2 p.m. to 2 a.m. for um, two years. It was crazy. There'd be nights where I'd write like 10, 11 stories a night. This is when you had your accident? Yeah, because I was, I was like, 
again, because of the American medical system, it's just so wonderful. I only got like three weeks maternity leave. And so I was deprived of sleep. And um, I was like working these crazy hours. And so I crashed two cars at the time, totaled them. They're completely gone. Um, and then, alhamdulillah, the pain ended and they actually graduated me to the next level, which meant that I started, I could start covering two towns and having a more normal um, lifestyle, like a 9 a.m. to 7 p.m., 8 p.m. lifestyle. And then eventually I get into um, the Chicago Tribune, and that's a really that's interesting that story. That's, it's a good story? Okay. Yeah, sure. So in that story, so again, I knew eventually that I was aiming for the Chicago Tribune, partly because one of the first things I did when I came to Chicago was, you know, I looked at all the buildings. Chicago's known for its architecture. It's gorgeous. And the Chicago Tribune building is beautiful. I mean, it's got all these stones and bricks from all over the world. And there's history there in terms of like how reporters in that era when the building was being built were basically tasked with stealing um, bricks and stones from important places around the world such as Egypt, India, all over. They were supposed to, like, go ahead and steal stuff. And they brought them back to Chicago, and they were placed within the building. Um, but the building was very unique in itself. Colonel McCormick had, like, all these interesting secret passageways that were created to help him escape noisy residents from within the tower. It's just a beautiful Gothic building. So I always knew that someday I wanted to work in that building because it was so interesting. And so I, I always knew that the target was the Chicago Tribune. Um, alhamdulillah, I didn't have to wait too long. So basically a member of the Muslim community told me to reach out to the, the editor of the editorial board, who's African-American, who he had had a conversation with talking about getting more Muslim representation within the newsroom. And this editor... Uh, was um, open to the idea, told him, let me know who are some Muslim journalists that are working in the field, and we will try to do that. And so I had a name now. You know, again, I said to you at the beginning, it was really hard to break it, break in because I didn't know anybody. I didn't know any Muslims. I didn't know anybody. It wasn't like, you know, we had like a line of uncles and aunts who were working in journalism and they knew this person and that like I had none of that and a lot of my colleagues actually did have that there were some colleagues who came in straight without any you know family members who were journalists but I had a lot of colleagues who moved quite quickly um, up the ladder and they had members of their family who were well-known either Chicago journalists or national journalists working out in New York and of course it helped them and I didn't have anybody so now I had a name and I had a person who I could uh, contact. And so again, cold turkey, I, um, I reached out to him and uh, told him who I was, what I was doing, what I was doing at the Daily Herald. And he seemed uh, interested in meeting me. He said he was interested in meeting me. Um, and, you know, go ahead and bring me some of your clips. Send me some of your clips. We'll go over your clips. Clips are stories, by the way. And so we met at the Trib. And then I brought some clips, and he was really good, very thoughtful in terms of, like, he had marked and read, like, things that I should do differently in my stories. And I really, I found him really, really helpful. So at the end of that conversation, I just said to him, I'd like you to be my mentor. 
And I found that that really is really, really helpful, actually. You know, just declare it. Don't even ask it. Just say, I'd like you to be my mentor. And then you can follow up with a question. But don't ask first. Just declare it. And so I declared it. I just said, you know, I'd like you to be my mentor. And then he said, oh, I'd, I'd love to. You know, it would be an honor. And so it began what it began as this basically, I think, six months or maybe a year. We worked really closely together every few months. I would send him like a set of clips and he would go through them and he would look at them. And strangely, before I even had a name, what I did have at the Tribune was I know that I knew that there was this recruiter named Sheila Wolf. She's legendary because she's basically like the gateway. She keeps people away from gatekeeper. the gatekeeper. Sorry, not the gateway. The gatekeeper. You're right. Gateway would allow her to come bring people in no she was the gatekeeper she was really restrictive in terms of who got into the tribune like she poo-pooed the idea of somebody like even from like the daily herald getting into the tribune because she it was too small a paper for her she was always looking for people like from like mid-sized newspapers well-known newspapers to come into the tribune and then for me another negative was the fact that um you know I, i wasn't coming from a great paper i didn't know anybody and um, she didn't know who I was. Like, there was no person that could help me get to her. So um, I was. I had already, I think maybe for the last year, I had already been sending her clips. Every six months, I was sending her, like, a new batch of clips and a letter. And no response. Silence. Silence. And so once I met Don Wycliffe and he became my mentor, um, he started helping me fix my stories and the way I was writing them. And then eventually what he did is that he took my clips and he put it on her desk. And he said, look at this person. And until then, she had not looked at my clips. Like she was throwing them away. Of course she was throwing them away. But basically when Dawn did that, right, that's when she called me and she called me in for an interview. And eventually I got like, it was called a one-year internship um, at the Tribune. And it was basically your opportunity to shine. And if they liked you, at the end of it, they would hire you. And if they didn't like you, well, you had that on your resume. Um, and it was a great opportunity to come in. And years later, funny, funny, funnily enough, years later, I met her. Uh, I think she was retired by then. And I had just come back from overseas. And by then, everybody knew that I had done all this foreign correspondence work. And she said to me, I always knew you were going to be great. I always knew you were, you were going to be um a great reporter, and that's the reason why I hired you. And I just laughed at her, and I said, thank you for hiring me. But internally, I knew that she was the gatekeeper, and she had actually prevented me from getting into the trip for so long. It was only because of Dawn that I got in. She said the audacity. The audacity, exactly. Okay, so then, um, so you make your way into the Tribune, and then uh, soon after, 9-11 happens, and the whole the world changes, media changes, your life changes. Um, let's let's start with Oprah. Do you want to talk about Oprah? No, I don't want to talk about I Oprah. I hate this topic, but we have to talk about. How did how did you even how did you come on Oprah's radar? And what what was she trying to do? So nine eleven happens. I think we were in the we were still at home in the morning, mm-hmm. and I was trying to get you ready for school. Or was it preschool? I can't even remember. And um, then I started getting calls from work to get in right away. I drop you off. I get into work. And it's just like, oh, my God, another terrorist. 
this is this is the first time that it hit close to home. It was in America. But until then, there had been a series of like terrorist acts where Muslims were involved. So this is this was basically compounding on others, right? And every time at this point that there was a terrorist attack and Muslims were involved, every time your like heart would sink mm-hmm. because you'd be like worried first was you know were Muslims involved in this, and then you'd be like oh my god, and then you'd have to sort of deal with the repercussions of that. This was the first time where it hit so close to home because it happened in America. There were Muslims that were involved, and it basically meant backlash on the Muslim community in a severe way. Mm-hmm. So when I got into the newsroom, um, we were all tasked with different things. There were some people that were driving out to New York because you couldn't fly in. So there were some people that were driving out to New York to cover what was going on there. I was sort of put along with the team that was looking at the backlash on the Muslim community. And so um, in in the Chicago area, there was a community that was in the south suburbs, again, snuck into like this really racist part of the city in the southwest suburbs was this small little community called Bridgeview. It was largely Arab and uh, Palestinian largely. and um, it was in the south suburbs, and the way the mosque was positioned was that around the mosque were residential areas. There, there's a, tr- a railroad line that sort of cut it off at a certain point, a main road. So it was like a triangular little community in which all the residences around the mosque were largely occupied by Muslims. They had bought the properties around there, and there was a mosque. There was two Islamic schools in that area, and so it was a very insular community, um, which has its benefits, but it also can create problems. So what happened was that on the night of 9-11, so this is in the evening following everything that had happened during the day, um, this mob had gathered all these races from from that area. And a lot of them are like neo-Nazi types. And they came into the community in their pickup trucks. And they're almost like a parade or... It was definitely a mob, and they were definitely trying to incite something, and they were definitely trying to create fear in that community. So they were driving around like this residential area up and down the streets and screaming all kinds of racial slurs. And um, and so the people in the community were really scared. They were really freaked out. And so the next, I had already started working on stories about the backlash, how Muslims felt, uh, because this, is, this had happened, what they were scared of, and then the next day I had to start working on stories, looking at what this mob that had formed in Bridgeview, and what the community was doing, what the police were doing to sort of prevent that from happening again. And so I was walking a little north of that community, still within the city. There's another Arab community that that's um, that is in an area where Iman actually. Is very active. Inner city Muslim action network. Um, so in that community, this is on 69th, around 69th Street. Um, so I was walking up and down the road, and I was actually there's a bunch of um, Arab organization, not profit organizations that I was interviewing that day, and people that I was meeting and talking to them. And so I'm standing on the street, and these um, these with these two other men. And I'm interviewing them because they're part of this organization and I'm trying to get quotes from them about just the backlash, what they face, the hate mail that they're getting, um, some of the, some of the reactions that they're receiving from within the community and outside the community uh, from haters. And taking notes, we're on, the, we're on the side of the street 
and we see this car, like this really like beat up car, drive one way, so it's driving east, then basically make a U-turn and because they look at us from the window and then they come around and then they roll down their windows and then they start saying, um, what did they call me? They said some sort of racist term to me. They said the F word. I remember that. That's pretty clear in my memory. <laughs> and then something like um, carpetbagger or something like that. Can I look it up? Look what up? What are you going to look up? Racist slurs? Yeah. Hold on one second. What are you looking for exactly? Do we need the do we need the exact racial slur? I mean, I'm not sure this is the most important <laughs> part of the story. All right. So I'm standing with these I'm standing with these two Arab guys, and there's this like beat up car that is basically headed eastbound, and then it makes like this dramatic U-turn and heading into our direction. And then there's two guys in the car, they roll down their window and they say the F word, and then they say this racist remark. Some I can't remember what the what the term was, but it was horrible. I, I remember it was horrible because it was, you know, tagged on to the F word. And I turned to the I turned to the guys that are that are uh, that I'm interviewing, and then I'm and I say to them, um, you know, how does that feel like just to be attacked like that in the middle of the street? Do you get this a lot? And they look at me, and both of them look at me with this confused look, and they say to me, "That wasn't for us. That was for you." And I was like, oh my God, yes, it was for me because I'm yeah, the only apparent Muslim. Yeah. I'm the only apparent Muslim on the street. But sometimes as a journalist, <laughs> like you go through life with this sort of like this veneer over your eyes and you think, oh, I'm just like this passive um, observer. Invisible, yeah. I'm, I'm invisible. I'm wearing an invisible cloak and I'm just this passive person who's just going around observing things. But you, you forget that you're also, you know visible to the rest of the world and you can be a target as well i like how you've conveniently avoided oprah okay uh, i hate the oprah story just tell me how did you get on the show why why did she want you on the show and what did you do for like what did you do have to do and then you can talk about all the things you didn't like like how she made you walk and swim and do weird things so in, on the heels of all this backlash towards Muslims, then there was an effort that was made to talk about, well, here are the other Muslims that are contributing to America at large. And so um, Oprah decided that she wanted to do this piece where she was looking at um, Muslim women and Muslim women sort of breaking stereotypes. And um, much later, I found out that the people that she had on, like she had little videos or snippets or interviews with them, were people that I not necessarily admired. And so I was basically sort of tagged along with them. So this is one of the reasons why I hated this whole clip. But it was, uh, it was, she was the princess, I think it was Rania from Jordan. Okay. That was supposedly one of the progressive no because oprah like loved her was in love with her and it was basically like this is a progressive muslim woman so she had a clip on her and she also had a clip on another muslim woman who was part of like that elite world oh the second person was the current uh president of syria his wife who at that time 
this is prior to the whole Syrian war. You know, she was basically being touted as like this Oxford bred, um, you know, progressive woman. So she had these two women on and then she had like a panel discussion and then they also wanted to follow me around. I don't know who, but somebody apparently like suggested me to her. I don't know who that person was, but somehow the producers started calling me and um, wanted to basically film me in various aspects of my life. They loved the idea that I was a journalist in Chicago. And I initially, I guess I agreed to it because I was like, okay, so they're looking for a different perspective on Muslim Muslims in America and basically trying to show that we're normal human beings, right? We're not all terrorists. And um, and so I felt like, okay, I should just go ahead and do it. And so I did it. But like I said, later on, I was just really upset because of the people that she sort of attached me mm-hmm. with. And then also just like the course. I mean, I, sh- I probably should have figured this out. I mean, it's Oprah, for God's sakes. And so like the producer was in our home and they were like basically going through my closet at one point. And was um, they were amazed at the fact that I had a pair of jeans and I was just rolling my eyes. I was just dying at this point. Like, why would not? Why would I not have a pair of jeans in my closet? Why? Is, is this being Muslim prevent me from wearing a pair of jeans? Um, and then they also the producer was doing like other weird things, like because I I run and I swim. They wanted to get like footage of me doing that. Okay, that would have been fine, but they could have done that in my neighborhood. But no, they wanted me to do that at like. Oprah's like exclusive like club in Chicago like her her fitness club and I was just I was rolling my eyes by then and I was just like this is so not journalism one it's not true all of this is fake it's all false and then two because it like where you do it is important too right that's fake I'm not I don't work out in those places and then two um it's just the things that they were trying to highlight. I just felt like it was so superficial because mm-hmm. that's Oprah. It's very, it was very superficial. It was not getting into the nitty gritty. Um, but I guess what the good that came out of it was that at the time the producer had asked me for names of people who they could invite into the audience. So I brought a bunch of my friends who I knew were like pretty strong vocal Muslim women. And they were sort of like sitting behind me. And then they, a, a few of them spoke out. We had like a discussion afterward. Including? And they were pretty powerful. Usman. And Azhar, I can't remember if I recommended Azhar or somebody else recommended Azhar. So Azhar, Usman, the, com- the comedian, was also part of it. And so all my anger about this whole thing was um, culminated in like this final panel discussion um, in which I got to voice my annoyance um, at... Uh, her understanding of what it means to be a Muslim. And um, yeah, so that's why that clip exists. And hopefully one day it will be buried. I keep, it's a great clip. I keep making dua that that thing just goes away and somehow it resurfaces every few months. And I hate it. I hate it. I hate it so much. It just brings back such horrible memories. Um, so that's that. Okay. So, because of 9-11, you start this long series of stories for for the Tribune, but you also kind of have this backstory and fascination with Afghanistan from when you were younger. Do you want to talk about that link and then what eventually led you to go overseas? Right. So, when I was a child, 
you know, one of the amazing things that my dad did for me, and maybe it was because he had three daughters, is that he never raised me necessarily as a daughter. He raised me more with like this joy to vive and this desire to learn and explore the world. And every time I wanted to go see something or a museum or try to learn something, my dad would like, my dad would take me there. He'd make it happen. And um, so, and he'd take me to all these amazing lectures. Like he never treated me like a child. He always treated me like like somebody who had curiosity and whose curiosity should be um, nourished and, and nurtured. Nurtured. This is also and where you get your confidence to just go off cold turkey to people. Probably. I think my dad sort of really helped in that. Like he helped nurture that a lot with me. So um, in, in my later part of my middle school or early high school, um, a couple of, uh, a Muslim group had brought in two Mujahideen, which were like freedom fighters, probably from the Northern Alliance, um, from Afghanistan to Toronto. They were at a university function. Was it U of T or was it York? I can't remember. And my dad took me there to hear, to hear them. And maybe even before this, I had a fascination with Afghanistan and maybe that's why he knew that I would be interested. Maybe I was always like reading up stories about the war in Afghanistan and um, the people that had died there and just, I was in love with the landscape and just the beauty of the country. So my dad probably knew that, that I'd be interested. So he took me there and we went. And then after the lecture ended, my dad took me to the front. Like he knew that I wanted, I had more questions for the two Mujahideen because they had talked about it. They had alluded to this um, in their talk, but I wanted to get more from them in terms of um, just the nature of, of the war itself and their own recollections of um, the malaika, the angels helping them, um, helping, the Af- helping the Mujahideen and helping the Afghans, especially during their, during their war with the Soviet Union. And they had all kinds of stories that they were telling me at that time and um, at the end of the lecture, they were also selling, like, um, handbags. And my dad bought one for me, and it was, like, my, one of my treasured possessions for most of my life. Still have I it. still have it. And um, it was basically to help their effort. And if I remember right, I think this wasn't even during the Civil War. I think this was, they were still fighting at this time with the Soviet Union. But this whole idea, like, I was, I was just amazed at their stories and I was also amazed at their taqwa the fact that they had decided to fight and just the way they were talking about like how everything the most important thing for them was um sacrificing for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and fighting to preserve Islam within their country against the Soviet Union which didn't necessarily didn't believe in anything and that remained something in my in my brain. And so even in my pre-med years, I you know, fantasized, as most young people do, about having like these great adventures. But my adventures always were in Afghanistan. And because of a pre-med student there, back then the adventures always revolved around like working with Doctors Without Borders, 
somehow going there and like discovering this country. So it was always in the back of my mind. So when 9-11 happened and our worlds were upended and within the newsroom, everybody's job shifted. There were, there were reporters that were being sent to New York. There were veteran reporters that were being sent to all parts of Afghanistan and Pakistan to cover the war. And I wanted to go too. And for me, my impetus for going was I wanted to make sure that I was able to tell the truth of what I was observing and seeing and making sure that I told the truth about the Afghan people and, and the Muslims that may be killed as a result of the war, like the untold stories. That was my desire to go there. And, um, yeah, so a friend of mine in the newsroom helped me that night draft a letter to the managing editor, Cole Turkey. He wasn't somebody I really knew. Um, but she helped me draft this letter basically saying that my family was from Pakistan and I knew the language there, Urdu, and um, that this would be a great opportunity. And I, I was interested in covering the war. And this would be a great opportunity for me to, one, use the resources that I had um, within the country to, um, to then cover the war. And so this managing editor, amazing individual, took a chance on me. He didn't know me. Well, I, he knew my work, but he didn't really know me. I, I really hadn't like built a reputation. I was just, I was a new hire. And if you know anything about foreign correspondence, one thing you should know is that it's supposed to be something that a reporter who's been there long enough, this is like their reward yeah. that they that they get. But because of the nature of what was unfolding with 9-11 and the resources that were being shifted around the newsroom, I was very young. I was a young reporter. And I didn't necessarily have the experience. And so before I went, I think I had like a day or two, along with getting my visa, I had to sit down with some veteran reporters and they were trying to teach me how to how do you how do you operate as a reporter in a country that you've never worked in mm -hmm. and um like some like basic stuff like how to get something called a fixer which is basically like your translator but it's also your person that puts you in contact with people and here's a list of some of the fixers we've used in Pakistan in the past Pakistan's a big country and most of the fixers that they've used in the past were in Islamabad I was going to land in Karachi where we had no one um, and then here's some like pretty basic safety tips and that was it I was sent off on this great opportunity with very little training the day I flew out was the day that the US started bombing Afghanistan I remember thinking that as I was on the airplane oh. <laughs> and um, and then I arrived in Karachi and um, we had a reporter that was coming in from the Northern Alliance in the north, who was coming in from uh, Uzbekistan, the border with Uzbekistan, and they were making their way down. And then we had a reporter that was covering the war from Islamabad, so whatever the Pakistani government or the Americans were saying. And then I was based in Karachi initially, but the purpose was that I was going to be the roamer. 
I was going to be the person that could float around wherever they needed me in the country. And eventually that I was going to try to get to the southern border with Afghanistan and get in. So when I first landed Karachi, I mean, again, this is a new country. I've never been a foreign correspondent my entire life. And I have to learn how to cover stories and what is the story. And um, so I, and I didn't even have a fixer. I didn't even know how to hire a fixer. Um, so what I did was I actually went to um, the main newspaper at the time. It's called the Dawn newspaper. And um, I went and met the editor. And I said to them, I want your best reporter. And I'd like to hire them as my translator, but also somebody who I can work with while I'm here in Karachi. And um, that person ended up being Salim Shahzad. And um, just an amazing journalist. He was a local Pakistani journalist. Um, and the first few stories that I worked with him were nothing that severe, but eventually over the years, I started working with him on stories that looked at the um, the Islamic madrasas that were in Pakistan and their ties to the secret intelligence service there called the ISI. And um, he became much more interested in pursuing that topic and um, and started doing stuff on his own with um, a Hong Kong-based organization um, called, I think, the Asian News Service. He was starting to do pieces for them, basically exposing the military um, for their extremist ties, the Pakistani military for their extremist ties. In the end, um, he disappeared. Um, this is years after I left Pakistan. He, he disappeared and then... Um, um, it was later reported that he was found, his body was found after many, many months. And the rumor has it was that it was done by um, the Pakistani Secret Service, the ISI. And um, I guess I'm telling this story because it sort of talks about the dangers of journalism. You know, you go in search of truth, you risk your life. And as foreign correspondents from the West, the risks to your life are actually much less than the people that are actually living there. You know, when they're writing about these things, their their lives are on the line. And in this case, you know, Salim, you know, he lost his life. He had a young family. And um, the way he went in the end, it was, it was so brutal. It was like when his body was found, it was like um, it was bloated because he had been in the water. They had drowned him eventually, or they had put the body there after they beat him up, but he was all bruised up. I mean, he just, he suffered a lot. And um, he was such a good man. Just so, so hospitable, but at the same time, so respectful, which, um, again, I can tell you other stories, but in that part of the world, as a Muslim woman working alone by myself, having that respect was so important um, and he was somebody that I that I trusted you know I, I guess I'm trying to say that you go in as a journalist with like just this naivete that you're going there to discover the truth and you're gonna write about the truth but there's so many implications there's so many lives that are lost 
there were a bunch of journalists in those early days that were killed. There were, I think it was a highway robbery men that got them on the road between Bishawar and uh, Jalalabad. It was like an entire convoy, and so many people were killed in that convoy. With me too, I mean, I had, I had like some run-ins where I felt like, you know, my life was at risk. There was a time where I was in a van and I was in the middle of a crowd. Um, I was the only woman in the van and this mob or this crowd that had formed was trying to push over and knock down the van that I was in. Um, there was times where there were IEDs or these sort of unexploded devices that were found in buildings that I was in. Um, so there, there were definitely incidents that happened. Um, and sort of shouting matches that I got into with the Taliban or with people in authority, which could quickly have gone awry. I, I also was dealing with the intelligence service, um, basically following me around and questioning my fixers um, because I was going into places where I shouldn't be and um, discovering American air bases where they were not supposed to exist because they weren't supposed to be in that country. So there were definitely things that were that were dangerous. There were definitely moments that were dangerous. The one thing that I haven't talked about in all of this is just my um, my belief that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala was always protecting me, and having that belief, knowing you're doing this for the right reason, it gives you a level of confidence. And so I wasn't thinking as much about the fear factor or like the threat to my life because I always felt like whatever was meant to be was meant to be and whatever was not meant to be was not going to touch me. And that I did feel as though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there were many incidents where I felt like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was protecting me. I could feel it. And so I did, you know, I went to different places and I did what I needed to do to get the to get to the bottom of the truth. Um, a few questions. So um, how many times did you go back and forth and and what kind of kept you going back? I can't remember. I know, like, the very first trip at the time of the war, that trip was for three months. And then eventually, at the end of that trip, um, I was one of the first reporters that got into Kandahar, Afghanistan. And this was right after um, the Taliban sort of surrendered, gave up, and sort of disappeared into the wilderness. And then there was like this mass desire to go from the southern border of Pakistan into Afghanistan. And I was one of the first reporters to get there. And so then I did stories from inside Afghanistan. Until then, I had been basically talking to refugees on the other side of Pakistan, talking about um, what it was like as they escaped Afghanistan, what the war was like, what was going on, how, what were the supplies like for the Taliban, what were the Americans doing, that kind of stuff. And until then also, I had also at that point developed, um, one of my sources became Hamid Karzai, who later became the president, because I knew his, I didn't know his brother. I met him in a city in Pakistan called Quetta. And strange enough, this is how the world works, but it ended up being that Hamid Karzai's uh, brother, Ahmad Wali, used to own a restaurant in Chicago. And so when he saw, like, Chicago Tribune on my card, he let me in. And then he became a source, and then eventually he put me in touch with his brother, 
Hamid Karzai, who was inside Afghanistan at the time, who was sort of fighting the war, fighting the war with quotation marks, um, through Loya Jergas. He was meeting up with elders in this um, area called Orizgan province, and he was trying to develop support for an anti-Taliban uh, effort through there. And so he became a source of mine really early on. Before This is long before the Taliban left. This is long before he became president. So that ended up being very helpful. Like, you never know who becomes the president in situations like this, but that ended up being really helpful when he became president because I had his contact information and he knew me because we had talked. Do you have, like, two or three stories that either happened to you while you were there or that you wrote about that kind of stuck with you over the years? Yeah, um, so in, in that the, the first three-month period, there was a there was all kinds of stuff that was going on, all kinds of craziness that was going on. Um, so there was one story where basically, uh, one of my main sources of information was a hospital in Quetta, which was getting patients because Kandahar didn't really have a big hospital. And so when somebody was injured, et cetera, they would take them across the border into this hospital in Quetta and they were treating them there. And so there was a family of, um, uh, a family that I interviewed and um, I think I interviewed the uncle of, like, the youngest surviving member of this family. It was, a, I think, a three-year-old kid that survived. And everybody else in the family had died because um, the Americans in their Chinook helicopters had come into their town. And I'm not quite sure how, but something caused the light of... So the family was sleeping in their house. In Afghanistan, they're extremely poor, so these are, like, these mud-caked homes. And they're, you know, it's basically like a one-room house. And they had a car, and whatever those, whatever activity that those Chinook helicopters were doing, it caused, somehow it caused the headlights of the car to go on. And so when the car lights came on, the family got worried that they would become like sitting ducks or targets for the military that was just basically shooting everybody in that area. Because I don't know why they were doing that. They claimed that there were Taliban in that area, probably. And so the father ran out to turn the lights off of the car, and he got shot down. And then um, the eldest kid ran after the father. He got shot down. And then the mother um, trying to was carrying a baby, and she ran after her eldest son, and she got shot down. And as she fell, she fell over the baby. And so that baby, that three-year-old, was the uh, last surviving member of that family. And so I wrote this story, um, and um, I guess this, this, it says something to American journalism, but when, once I wrote the story and it went to my editors, it was held for almost a day or two because they felt as though they couldn't just run the story on its own, even though they've done it in the past on other things. They felt like they needed to get the Pentagon to respond to it. And so it was held for a day or two while our Pentagon reporters were able to get, like, Pentagon officials at a press conference to respond to this. And of course they said, oh, you know, there's all, all kinds of people. We, we only go into communities where we hear that there's a threat of Taliban and we cannot account for anybody who's been shot. They're just casualties. They're just casualties, exactly. So they made that stupid comment and it was like one line in the sentence, but the story was held for a day. And then they ran that story. 
So that's a story that I remember. Um, I remember in that hospital, like, oh my God, this was just one family in, that I focused on, but there would be like women and kids in that family in, in that hospital. And you could go in and they'd all have like these burn marks. I still remember. I think it's from the explosive devices, but when an explosive device, when it shatters, it creates like these little metal things, right? And so every time when it explodes like that, it can hit different parts of your body. And so when it hits, it like leaves, if it doesn't embed in, into you, it can also leave like these like burn marks, like these black burn marks. And I remember in the hospital, like, oh my God, like everybody in that hospital that was brought in from across the border had like these burn marks like throughout their body. Mothers, little kids, all over their body, on their faces, tons of them. And some people were missing limbs, some people were missing eyes. I mean, it was just, it was horrendous. And so, so th this would be what the Americans would call like collateral damage. But there was so much of this collateral damage, like, you know, you could see it, I could see it almost on a daily basis. They would be bringing in ambulances with these people. And, you know, the Americans would just write them off as people who were collateral damage, just casualties of war, or that, you know, they thought that they had heard that there was Taliban in this community. And so they'd be just be written off like that. But so many lives lost that people don't even know about. I think it's it was very severely underestimated in terms of like the, the innocent people and the innocent lives that were lost there. Um, the other story that I kind of remember is, um, again, within that hospital, um, by now I'm in Quetta. I'm in the southern town that's on the border of Afghanistan. So the fixers that I have are now different. And so I um, chose a young kid um, to be my fixer. So this young kid uh, knew somebody else. This is how this works. This young kid knew somebody else who knew that they and who had ties to um, Pakistani intelligence. And they knew that there were a bunch of Al-Qaeda in a hospital, Al-Qaeda fighters in a hospital in Quetta that were being treated. And it was top secret, very, very secretive, because the Pakistani military knew, but they didn't want the Americans to find out that they were, one, harboring. Al-Qaeda fighters and two treating them um, and so somehow um, the forces that be got me into that room um, to talk to these fighters and um, and again like the windows of this hospital room were all like closed off like nobody knew that they were there they were there but they were not there and there were almost like five or six of them and they had been Either they were captured or they had brought, been brought to the hospital because, um, you know, some of them were missing limbs. Some of them had all kinds of like battle scars that they were dealing with. Um, and so there was, when I walked into the room, I was the only woman, it was all men. Um, and then when I walked into the room, like, I just like saw these men like turn to me and they're all in hospital beds, but they're just like ready to like, like the anger in their eyes was just so severe. Like they're ready to kill me. They were so upset with me. Because one, how dare a woman walk into this room, right? If you if you kind of remember like sort of the extremist mentality, it's like these are spaces for men and it's not a space for a woman, definitely not a Muslim woman. Um, and they knew I was a journalist going in. So there was, there was a lot of anger in their face. And so I approached the person that looked the most approachable. 
uh, he was a man who like, I don't know if he smiled at me, but he just, he looked like he wasn't ready to kill me. So I, I approached his bed first and I started talking to him and he wouldn't tell me where he was from. He was Arab, somewhere, somewhere from like either Saudi or the Emirates, had done his master's in the West, uh, most likely the United States at some point, and um, had started off on this mission. Like basically he had decided that he wanted to die a Shaheed and so he was going from battle to battle. He had fought in Chechnya, he had fought in some other places as well. And um, he said to me, like his wife had basically said to him to, you know, continue this, that she would take care of the kids and that he should, that she wanted him to die a Shaheed. And, um, and, and so he, and he talked and I, I think I asked him a question, like, you know, what, so you're doing this, you're fighting this, you're fighting in various jihads around the world. And what is it like, like killing? Like, what is that like? What does that do to you? And he said to me, he gave me this scenario, um, sticks in my mind. Um, he said to me that when he first started fighting in jihads, um, it was a lot like when you get a goat for Eid al-Adha, you know, in back home in in the Middle East and even in South Asia, before Eid al-Adha, they would like acquire a goat, it would become like the family pet, they would take care of it, they would feed it, they, they would become, they would love it. And then eventually it would come time to kill it and sacrifice it for um, for Khurbani. And, um, and then the, sort of the pain that you would feel when you would kill this animal. Um, and then he said, the very first time that you do this, the very first time that I killed somebody, um, in the course of fighting, it was it was like that. It was, I cried. It was very like it hurt deeply. But after a time, he said it becomes like a cancer, where you know you need to keep doing it. You need to keep fighting, and you need to keep killing the people that you're fighting against. Um, and um, and that you know one day he hopes that you know Allah Subhanahu wa Taala will accept this from him, and that he will um, die a shaheed. And um, I tell this story. Why do I tell this story? Um, I tell this story because I think it sort of gives you a mind frame of where people like this are coming from, right? People who are fighting like this. And he told me that, you know, when he was doing his master's in the West, that he had done some things that he was ashamed of, that there were sins. And so basically he thought the only way to absolve himself was to die a shaheed. And so this had become his passion in his life. This is why he was doing this. And that his friends, other of his friends were also doing this and they were basically going from war to war. And um, when I did this story, when I, I initially wrote this story and when I actually went to interview him, because of the atmosphere in the room, I didn't tell them that I worked for a paper in the West. I just told them that I was a journalist. I didn't say the name of the, my newspaper. I didn't say any of that because I thought they were, literally they looked like they were ready to pounce. Even the guy that had his legs slung up looked like he was ready to pounce and strangle me. So I didn't say any of that. And so when I came back, I wrote my story and the editors felt as though I had not completely represented myself fully, truthfully, um, that they sh I should have said the name of the newspaper that, um, that I was working for. And so they held the story for a day 
In the meantime, another Associated Press reporter also got into this room through the sources, and he wrote the story about how, like I said, the one guy with his legs slung up, once he told him that he was working for the Associated Press, literally, the same guy that I talked to, literally, like, pounced and strang- like tried to strangle him, and they had to get him out of the room, and that was the end of the story. Like, he didn't get, like, the whole interview. He just was able to report that this happened. And so because of that, the editors then decided that, okay, I had taken the right steps, and then they published my story the next day. Wow. But, I mean, I, I guess I say this story because, you know, in the Muslim world, there's all kinds of conspiracies about what happened here. And from my, from what I observed and the people that I met, and even when I got into Kandahar, um, there's always truth to everything, Right. So whether they were called Al-Qaeda or not, there were a group of Arab fighters that were there in southern Afghanistan. That's a reality because I met them. I met the injured ones. I saw the places where they were apparently living. And I saw like bombed out homes where I, you know, I found manuals where they had like, they had been writing, um, they had been going through military training and stuff like that. And there were like little notebooks that I found of theirs all written in Arabic. Um, passports I found, like passport copies, people from the Emirates and Kuwait and all that stuff. So there were definitely Arab fighters in southern Afghanistan that the Taliban were harboring. That's that's a reality. Whether they are classified under this term al-Qaeda, which some Muslims may disagree with, is um, that's something else. Oh, and then the final story that I should also say is that um, I was one of the few reporters that also got into um, Mullah Omar's house. This was the Taliban leader that was harboring um, the Al-Qaeda um, in southern Afghanistan. And uh, how did I get in? I think I just got in because once once the Taliban disappeared um, from southern Afghanistan, from Kandahar, um, the American military came in, and then the place that they decided to station themselves was in Mullah Omar's house, which is like the nicest compound there. So that should have technically meant that I couldn't get in. But because I didn't come across as a journalist, nobody thought I was a journalist, I was allowed to wander around. And so nobody bothered me or my fixers, and we were basically able to wander around the house, and I was picking up stuff constantly. Like there were different edicts that the Taliban were putting out in terms of like, there's one that I kept, um, but about how like they were going to go around and make sure that everybody's praying five times a day. And they put this edict out that they they print out these edicts and they post them everywhere. And they, there was this one edict where you know they were going to go around and start questioning people in terms of whether they were praying five times a day. And if they weren't, then there was like certain punishments that that were going to be coming their way. And so that was there was like this room within Malama's house where there were all of these different edicts, and that was one of the ones that I collected. Um, and the other thing that I discovered was the lavishness of Malamra's house, which really I found that extremely upsetting. But so this is one of the things that I talk about is that, you know, you go in search of the truth and sometimes the truth that you find is not the truth that you expected. And so I went in with my own preconceived notions of the fact that, yes, the Americans were probably going to go in there and kill a lot of innocent people. And I found stories that match that. Um, what I did, wasn't necessarily expecting was just like on the other end, the Muslim end, um, people 
manipulating power and taking advantage of people. And so, for example, during the war in southern Pakistan, every night people would collect like bread, like their leftover bread, their nans, and they would collect them in the local masjid and then they would be sent over um, because it was supposed to feed the people of Afghanistan during the war. When I got there, guess where all the bags of bread were? They were in Malamar's compound, like unopened. There were bags and bags of these. I was so upset. I still remember when I saw this. It was a whole room full of them. And I was like sick to my tummy. I was so angry and I was so upset. So meanwhile, like the people in the in Kandahar were going hungry during this because they're under siege, right? And all this bread is sitting in Malamar's house. And in the house itself, it was like so lavish. Like everybody else, if you if you see Kandahar, especially at that time, um, they had gone through years and years, almost 25 years of war, first with the Soviets, then with civil war. And so there's parts of the city that are just completely bombed out. Like there's homes that, you know, from back in the Soviet area ha- are like half demolished, but not completely. Nothing new has been built in its place. And so these are people who are poor, and people who have nothing, they're living in the most austere of ways. Like One of the things that maybe people in the West found out much later was just how, um, how ancient the lifestyle was in, in Afghanistan. Like cell phone service, like all that kind of stuff came in much later. And, um, and so homes were like that. The people's lifestyles were like that. They were, they were really, they're poor. And meanwhile, in Mullah Omar's house, this compound that he had, he had like this massive compound and there were like all kinds of luxuries in there, like dishwashers and um, yeah, like statues that he had built and murals that he had painted around the house. And it was just, it was extremely upsetting to me that Muslims in power, like I guess it, I told you I was a naive young reporter. And so that was one of the wake up calls for me was that People in power, it doesn't matter if you're Muslim or not, are always going to be abusing that power. And they they do what they need to to hold on to that power. And um, when they have money, when they have wealth, they're not necessarily sharing it with the masses. And so when wars happen, when battles happen, the people that suffer the most are the people that have no power. They have no wealth. And, um, and, the, and the rich people, you know, they somehow disappear. They get away. Um, so what were kind of like the bigger projects that you worked on after these initial trips? So that was my first trip. Um, I came back. I was sent back again when Hamid Karzai was actually, no, I think the king was, there were, the king, um, was returning from Italy and there was questions about who the president would be. And I was sent back at that time. So I did, I think that was another six week stint, um, uh, I should also mention to you that when I was covering the war between um, between America and um, Afghanistan, um, I was also, a lot of times I was landing initially in Pakistan and I was co- covering the politics within Pakistan itself and its own internal um, battles, its, its own internal political battles, but also its own internal uh, fight with Islamic extremists. And I was also covering the war with India. And so um, I had opportunities to go into Kashmir um, on my own, uh, where I was basically sort of trying to track the militants that were fighting 
on that border um, as well. And I was going into towns where um, there was a lot of Islamic militant activity and they were going into India to fight. And in one of the towns, they were also getting bombs uh, launched at them from, from India. So I did that story. Um, within Pakistan, I was covering, like I said, a lot about the political situation. So I think Musharraf was president at the time. Then um, Musharraf gets kicked out. There's elections that happen. Nawaz Sharif comes in. Um, I think I covered it all the way until Benazir uh, comes back into power. It was going back and forth a lot. And Benazir, I actually met her twice, but I met her in the States. And my hope was that one day I would um, cover her in Pakistan. Um, not because I was in any way aligned with her, but I just thought that it would be an interesting story to sort of tell um, when she finally returns and see what happens um, in terms of a reception in Pakistan. But um, that never happened. Um, uh, in Pakistan, I also wrote a lot. I told you about like the Islamic militancy within Pakistan. So that meant that I was, I was in the Swat area, which is in the north. Um, and I was writing a lot. There's a whole area of the Swat, er Swat region that at one point was completely controlled by the Taliban. They had taken the area away from Pakistan, more or less. And so I was covering what that was like. Um, there was a ski resort town which was completely shut down because um, the Taliban had come in and taken over and they were like bombing funerals, they were bombing the streets and people were dying on a daily basis and somebody snuck me in uh, to that area. Initially I went in with the Pakistani military. They took us on this whole tour th with their helicopters and they were showing us the parts that they had seized back from the Taliban and then a few days later somebody snuck me in secretively and then I was doing um, stories of what the reality was um, in those communities whether the Taliban were still in control and the sort of the fear level amongst the community members and I started getting into um, the whole uh, Islamic education system um, and then in Afghanistan, I was also writing about like the turnover and the political turnover. Um, once Hamid Karzai came in, how much power did he really have? Was he really like the mayor of Kabul and that was it? Or was he really the president? And so these figures that were appearing that were kind of fighting um, the Afghan government, I was sort of following them on the eastern border. Um, and then I was also sort of continuing to do stories about the eastern border and how there was uh, Taliban militants sort of all in hiding in those areas. And I was um, in some of those communities where the American military claimed that there were militants. Um, and then when I got there, I found out that, no, there were no militants. And so I, I did a bunch of those kinds of stories as well. Um, after I came back, so I, those, I can't remember how many trips that was altogether, but it was uh, like a seven-year period between 2001 and 2008 or 2009, where I was constantly going back and forth into that region. Um, eventually, somewhere in the middle of that, I start, uh, the the Tribune decided that it was going to do like a series on, um, it was called The Struggle for the Soul of Islam, and we were basically going to go to different parts of the world. Uh, one of the things that we looked at was Islam in North America, and we went back to that community in Bridgeview, 
uh, which over the years there's been a lot of rumors that it had been taken over by very conservative Muslims. Um, that community in Bridgeview had had a lot of problems. There were um, people that were arrested from that community, um, person that was arrested from that community in Israel and was accused of um, uh, helping Hamas, taking money for Hamas um, before he was let go. There were other organizations that had their money seized over the years because of that, because of that one person's arrest, um, or because of other things that were said within the community. And we knew that the FBI was sur surveilling that community for a while. And so the story that we did was basically about, we started looking at how when that mosque first opened, it was actually more like a Palestinian community center, and it was more secular Palestinian Muslims that opened this place. They had prayers and stuff. But over the years, as as the community developed, it became sort of um, taken over by the Ikhwan um, and people with Ikhwan influences from the Middle East who came in, who came over and took over the mosque. And what that meant, it just meant that some of the activity that they were getting in trouble for that's why they were getting in trouble for those activities. It didn't mean that anything sinister necessarily was happening within that community, but it was sort of just tracking what, what actually developed. We got a lot of heat for that um, for that piece, as you can imagine. I got a lot of heat because I was one of the main reporters on that story. Um, the people in the community were very honest, and I think we represented them to the best way possible. But I know the imam of that mosque, um, who had his own ties, to um, movements in the Middle East um, at one point in a khutbah talked about how I was like Khadrat Aisha and I was creating fitna. He didn't say, he didn't say my name, but alluded to the fact that there was a reporter and that reporter was creating fitna within the community. Um, and in the end, what happened was we did this piece and instead of creating change within that mosque and within that Muslim community. I think it just made people even more stubborn. And so um, the discussions that I had hoped would emerge did not emerge from that community. And I don't think it ever emerged in that community. I think it still sort of remains the same. We took that story and then I went on the national level. I had already started there were a lot of Muslim scholars at the time that who were already starting to talk to me. Maybe it was because of that piece. Maybe it was because we were asking questions about the influence of organizations in North America who had been instrumental, but their own roots within political militant Islam and what that meant in terms of their attitudes um, and what they were sort of promoting. And the big one was ISNA. And so I was doing a lot of interviews with ISNA at the time. Remember, this ISNA was the one that first um, inspired me to become a journalist. And I remember I was meeting like the secretary general of uh, ISNA in one interview. And I was, I was actually talking to him about his own Jamaat Islami roots in Kashmir and in India. And he turned to me in the middle of the interview and he goes, the chickens have come home to roost. He used that line? He used that line on me. And, um, and I said to him, look, it doesn't mean that because you came from that background that the organization has remained the same. It's part of the history. 
And so we're exploring the history and what that means, right? Um, and so then there were other people that I talked to, like, you know, the late Dr. Suleiman Yang, um, Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah, a lot of people that I met at that time who, who talked to me in more um, detailed ways. They actually gave me a lot of the background that I needed for that story in terms of how um, ISNA came to be, the influence that it had on Islam in the West, and what that meant now. Like we were at a stage after 9-11, we had grown up as a Muslim community, and maybe that political Islam that we were leaning towards in the past, maybe we had graduated from that. Maybe it was time to go spiritual now, go internal. And I think the piece that I produced after that, I think, I don't know if it helped, but I think people were already starting to lean towards that. And I think after that, we started seeing the emergence of a more spiritual and Sufi Islam, um, which I don't think was there before. Um, but it started the dialogue because before then, like in, is in the Isna circles, if you ever said the term Sufi, it was like a bad word. And people, before like a lot of this all happened, like the Sufis were like undercover. Like I remember people would have, they, were t they told me much later that they were part of Dhikr nights and stuff like that in people's homes. And they, even when they told me, like people that I knew, like friends of mine, that I, I didn't realize this, but it was all like very hush hush. It was very private. And they kept it to themselves. And even when they said to me that they were like, not embarrassed, but they weren't sure what my reaction would be. Um, and now it's like, now this is more mainstream Islam. Um, and so I'm, I'm grateful that I got in that opportunity to meet people like Dr. Suleiman Yang and talk to him and Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah. Um, I also, you know, again, what's been amazing in my life is I, I don't think that any of this has to do with me or... Um, what I bring to the table. I think Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has always like puts stuff in my path that I didn't necessarily think was there. And so in the course of reporting this, I found out like one of the main centers of Ikhwan where Ikhwan really emerged, like the person that I needed to talk to was in Florida. And I tracked that community down in Florida and eventually got contact for him. And he actually was now living in Washington, D.C. in Virginia. And I went on a weekend and interviewed him. And again, it was he was at the end of his life, I think, and he was ready to talk. And he talked to me about, yes, he was the leader of the Juan in North America and like the whole genesis of ISNA and other organizations that emerged out of there. And why they did what they did and how they were trying to get more Muslims mobilized and interested in learning the religion, etc. And so we did a story on that. Um, and so from from that series, I eventually I went back to Pakistan and we started looking in Pakistan at the um, in my early reportings in Pakistan, I had already gotten my hands on the curriculum, which apparently Western reporters don't get a hold of, but I somehow I landed in my hands. And um, and we had already started looking at the education system, the public education system, and their textbooks. And if you do, if you look at their curriculum or their education system, especially back then, like this whole idea of shaheed and jihad, it's like it's like sprinkled 
throughout their textbooks, like young fifth and sixth graders are reading about this stuff. But again, it's not like it's not like the stories of the Sahaba, right? They're actually reading about like a person who's joined the military, a soldier, and he dies uh, fighting India. And so now he, you know, so he's Shaheed because he fought as a soldier with the Pakistani military. So those those are the things that they're talking about. So it's basically they're using their political fight and then they're painting it with this picture of um, religion. And Allahu Alam, Allah knows best whether he grants them Shaheed or not. But for me, again, as a journalist, you know, you're trying to teach these things, these lessons to kids and you're ingraining these ideas um, in a very young age when they're like, you know, elementary school, middle school. And so that then produces people as adults who are very angry and they have something against India. Like you're producing people at the end as adults who do have who do have a, me- a mentality where they are at war with India. And that sort of helps sort of propel that political fight for generations on end. That was my argument. So I'd already started looking at that. And what we did then was with the series, we actually went into the Pakistani education system. So I did a little bit on the public system. And then my friend and I, who some of you may know, it's it's Kim Barker, who was the South Asia correspondent for the Tribune. She later on went to write a book, which became a movie called Whiskey Tango Foxtrot with Tina Fey. Anyway, we basically got into the madrasas of Pakistan. And that, again has a Chicago connection because the head of the um, the religious institutions in Pakistan at the time, when I went in to do this story, was Ziaul Haqs, President Ziaul Haqs' son, who actually has a, a Chicago connection. He used to be a pizza driver in Chicago. Chicago. The Chicago connections helped so much. And so he, um, I was able to convince him to get me into some of these madrasas. And again, what we found was that there was a range, you know, just like anything else. There were those madrasas that had ties to the Pakistani intelligence service. And so they were creating militants and fighters to go and fight either in India or in Afghanistan. And the heads of those madrasas admitted it to me and they were telling me, you know, and some of those, those relationships dated back. Some of them told me that, you know, some of these relationships dated back to the time of Ronald Reagan, where some of these madrasas were actually getting money from the American government at one point too. Yes, when they were creating fighters to fight in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union, they were actually getting money from the U.S. government way back. And then the Pakistani government followed suit afterwards. And then there were these other madrasas, which were real Islamic madrasas, where people were really getting an Islamic education and they their main initiative their main purpose was not to be creating these fighters. Like this one uh, that I met, this one mother said that I went into in Peshawar, you know, there were, there were people coming into this uh, madrasa from like the UK and all over. And I still remember like that mola, like, and you, I could always tell the ones that were a little shady versus the ones that were, because a lot of times it was the head of the madrasa himself, you know, the mola that headed the madrasa. A lot of times, again, if you can remember, I'm a young Muslim woman. I'm going in and I'm talking to these people. A lot of times their interaction with me as a young woman, I always knew whether there was something shady up or not because it was how they treated me and whether they treated me with respect 
or if they had a different agenda and um or if they were making weird comments like I, I just I always had like this my radar was pretty pretty strong pretty pretty strong on this and so this one madrasa we went to um, it was Molana Hassan Jan in Peshawar and you could see immediately like the feel of the madrasa the things that were being taught the way the students were learning and the way they were talking to me and the things that they were learning they were getting with their Islamic education they were also getting a secular education and even their Islamic education you could see that it was purposeful and the stuff that they were learning was stuff that was going to help them benefit their society at large later and then the ones that were like more on the strange side you could immediately see in the language of the of the instruction and the instructors and the textbooks that what they were using how rigid they were and what they were focusing on within those lectures and Kim and I would actually they would let us a lot of the madrasas opened their doors and they would actually let us sit in on uh, the lessons. We would like go in full burqa, full black burqa in the middle of the, I still have it, in the middle of the heat and just like listen in and um, try to understand what was taking place. And my urdu was good, but you know, again, it's not that great. I've got like a fifth or sixth grade urdu. So a lot of the technical, like beautiful urdu, it's I, it gets lost on me, so I still needed a translator. We had a translator who would translate for us. Um, but that was an experience, and so we produced this series. It took us three years to produce it, and then we finally did it. And then after that, um, the Tribune was going through its own upheaval, as most of the media world was at that time. A lot of people realized that people were not reading newspapers anymore. Um, in the case of the Tribune, we got bought out by this um, this interesting gentleman, <laughs> and um, and basically he more or less put us into bankruptcy, and um, and so what that ended up happening with the Chicago Tribune is that they closed up all their foreign shops, so all the foreign bureaus were closed down. A lot of the foreign correspondents were brought back and given uh, local or national assignments. And then we started just using the LA Times. We own the LA Times too, so we use the LA Times reporters. Um, and then eventually, I think even that became like there's only a few that were left. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, at that time, I was also sort of brought back. My my parachuting trips ended, where I would be allowed to parachute in somewhere and, and write whatever I needed to, and then come back. That all ended, and I ended up uh, having to. I was given a beat. I was given the Chicago Public Schools beat. And... Can we stop for a sec? Yeah. Just before we get too far past Alana Sen, do you want to talk about Bach a little bit? Yeah, so one of the things that came out of all of this is, you know, I, st- I started the whole conversation by talking about um, how when I was a kid, my dad took me to hear from these Afghan Mujahideen, and that sort of, I fell in love with, Afghanistan and the idea of Afghanistan and this battle, this jihad between the Afghans and the Soviet Union at a very young age. And eventually, you know, when I met my husband and I I married him, I think that was one of the things that, you know, that was one of the things that drew me to him because he 
was an Afghan Mujahideen. He actually fought at a very young age. He was 15 years old when he um, left his parents to go start fighting in the war. His, his brother, his older brother, before him had fought and was killed because he was a Shaheed. Um, I think he was like 20, 2021 when he died. And then, um, then my husband went in after that. And so through the course of being with him and through this whole experience, what I ended up appreciating, um, was that within Afghanistan, especially in southern Afghanistan, in Kandahar, the taqwa of the people, they have this just firm belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and this firm certainty, um, no matter what's going on, they've been going through war for years. Within my husband's family, you know, he's lost, you know, 45, 50, 60 members of his family from the time the Soviets came through the Civil War, through the American bombings, to the incidents with Taliban after that. So many members of his family have been killed outright. Um, and even my husband, like he went through a lot with the Taliban when he started working within the Afghan government because there was always death threats. There were, there were threats to his life that happened. And so what I, what I learned from him and from the people that I met in Kandahar was this strong taqwa that they have um, in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and in that firmness in, in their faith and their desire to sacrifice everything, including their life, for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And also that strong faith in um, no matter what's coming their way, their taqwa is not, it's not shaken. And it's just something that I, I really admire, and I've met so many of them. And with my husband, too, I mean, we've, we've heard stories of his time as a young soldier and some, some of the stories from the battle scenes or even, you know, as he's, as he's making his way to battle from Pakistan or wherever he was at the time um, of, of, like, different, like, they're miracles, right? They're yeah. miracles that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sending their way. And it just, I, I really love those stories because it it helps me with my own iman, like it strengthens it. So there's one where um, he told me, um, and this was something that, that he's not the only one that's told me, that there's other people in that town in Kandahar, they've also seen this, they witnessed it, that in Kandahar when the Russians started bombing the town, they could actually see like bombs headed their way and then something like deviating those bombs or like basically like a ratchet effect where they're basically like kicked back towards wherever they came from. And some people have talked about seeing like wings in the sky doing this. Some people have just seen like the bullet, uh, the bomb just sort of divert and ricochet mm -hmm. and go in the other direction. But many people talk about sort of witnessing this and seeing this. There's another story where my um, my husband talks about like, um, so he would like fight for six months and then he would go back, rest for six months and then he would go back again and fight. And so in one of those periods where he was going back to fight again, um, in one of these stories, he's trying to get to the front lines and he's going with a group of people. And uh, they're going from the Pakistani border and they're trying to get into Kandahar, which is where the main fight fighting is going on. Um, or in the outskirts of it, and they're going through these mountains, and they're going through these mountain passes, and they lose their way because basically they're they're walking at night 
when everybody else is sleeping. And so they lose their way and they don't know if they're headed in the right direction or if they're walking straight into uh, the Russian forces. And so him and his friends who are with him, they see something in the distance. Like they get lost, they make dua, they're scared. Um, and then they make dua and um, they see like these like lights in the distance, like a green and a, a white flashing light. And so they get closer and closer to it. They're not really sure. One of them goes forward to see it. And um, and then when they get close to it, they actually see that the white and the green, it's actually like flags. Back in Afghanistan, when people die as shaheeds, they put flags in the ground. Like there's like these, they're green and silver, and they're usually like, you know, have like these flashy things, glittery things on them. And they put those on the graves. And so when they get close, they actually see the flags and it was it, it's basically signs that there were mujahid the fighters that had basically died here and so um or killed here and buried here and so those flags were planted i mean those there's no way that they saw those flags from far away so that was definitely something sent from allah subhanahu wa ta'ala where it was like this light but it based by heading them in that direction they were able to figure out where they were because they actually knew those grave sites. They had come upon them before. And they knew that, okay, this this grave site with these mujahids means that we're here now. And it would it helped them relocate themselves. So that's just like one of many stories. But there's many stories where you you feel there's many stories where you feel that protection from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, where you sense that feeling that he's there and he's guiding you. And I think if you meet Afghans, especially who have gone through the war, you should definitely sit down and talk with them, not just Afghans. I would say even the same with Syrians and Palestinians. You should sit down and talk to them because they can tell you about these amazing experiences that they've had where Malaika, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but they felt the presence of, of their Lord and they felt that protection. Um, and it's amazing because you can see why strengthens their iman but it also can help you strengthen your iman living in the west and as a product of the west we're told so much to only believe what's in front of us and so we forget the unseen world we read about it islam tells us about it we read about it in the lives of the sahaba but i don't think it directly affects us because we don't really see it it's there and as you start looking for it in life you'll see it Right, but we have been. Um, huh? Do you want to tell the key story? I'll tell it. Well, whenever you want me to tell. It. But I, I think when you start looking for it, you'll actually see it. But so much of growing up in the West has been that meant that we just believe in what we see, and we've been programmed to just believe what we see and not and not believe anything that we're not seeing. Right? We we put so much intellectual um, weight on our observation. And there's just so much of the unseen world where you can feel a less presence, a less Mahatma's presence. And um, we need to be open to seeing that. And when you start meeting these people who have experienced it, it's you should sit down and talk to them because they have amazing, amazing stories to tell. And you can feel the blessings from them as well. Like when you meet with them and you talk with them, you can see how Allah has blessed them in their lives. And... Um, that's that's also very amazing hearing those. I tell the key story. 
All right. Um, so the key story is um, this amazing story, which really for the outside world, they would see it as nothing, nothing unusual or unique. But as Muslims, right, and as people that believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is looking out for us and protecting us, maybe it has some meaning. So you and I um, were at my work late one day, which is typical. Um, it was like 10, 10.30, and um, late night, and we had to go back to the car. And the place where we used to park was, if you know Chicago, it was Lower Wacker Drive, so it's pretty dangerous. And um, there's parts of it where there's like a lot of homeless people that are just basically lounging around. And it's and just dark, and it's underneath. It's also dark, yeah. The, it's, it's like a second level below. Yeah, it's it's underneath the expressway, or it's an underneath part of Chicago, and it's very, very dark. There's no light that goes in there. So it's just very, it's shady and scary. It's 1030 at night. And um, it's like the basement of the city. <laughs> it's the basement of the city. And as we're walking to it, I look in my pockets and I can't find my keys and for the car. And I panic. I'm like, where's the keys? So I, I drag you back upstairs. We go back upstairs to the newsroom. It's not at my desk. And we come down. And as we're walking down towards the parking lot, and the parking lot is not attached to the Tribune building, by the way. So there is a section where, like, we're walking in no man's land. And um, it's scary. And uh, as we're walking into the parking lot, you know, I'm, I'm worried. I'm trying to show that I'm not stressed to you. And it's 1030, so even, like, if I were to call my relatives, would they get the call? Would somebody be able to come and get us? What would happen the next day? How would I get to work? I'm so worried about all these things. And so as we're walking, I make this dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I'm like, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, like, I really need your help here. And um, I don't know where my keys are. They could be in the car. Please let them be in the car. Please help me. I don't know how I'm supposed to get home. But more than that, I have this young child with me. I have to get her home. She's got to get to school. I've got to get to work the next day. And we have nobody else that we can turn to at this point. So I'm turning to you. So we get to the parking lot. We get to the car, and and I should say, when I make the dua, I feel like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to help me. I'm feeling really firm in my belief. And so I look in the car expecting that the keys are hanging in there, because I thought <laughs> that's what was going to happen, right? And they're not. And the door's locked, and the keys aren't below the car, which is what I thought second would happen, that there would be below the car. And now I'm just like troubled. And I'm like, I was so sure about this, that I was going to get this help, the certainty. And I tell you to wait at the car. I remember that I had thrown a garbage bag in the dumpster in the parking lot, um, in the trash can in the parking lot on my way to work. So I go, I walk back to the trash can and I find the bag actually that I had put in the trash can in the morning. And I go through the bag, and the keys are not inside there. And now I'm a little worried, and I'm I'm making dua too, and um and I put the trash the bag back in the trash can, and I turn around, and as I turn around away from the trash can, probably walking back to the car, I hear like a rustle. It's almost like clothes, like something moving, like clothes moving or something, and. I get worried because there's homeless people that are drifting around all the time, right? 
And I'm like, oh, there's a homeless person behind that trash can. And the trash can is leaning up against like this pillar or this pole. And I'm like, oh, there's a homeless person behind that pillar. I didn't notice that. And so I turned back to look for that homeless person, right? Because you need to confront the thing that you're scared of. <laughs> um, no, I don't know why I did that. But anyway, I, I did that. And, um, and just as I turn around, I see my keys. And the car keys are splayed. Like the trash can is leaning up against a pillar that has like a little bit of concrete, like a ledge. Mm -hmm. And the keys are splayed. Like basically they're like spread out on that ledge right up against the trash can. I should have seen those keys before, right? Because when I went into the trash can, it was at my eye level. I should have seen those keys before. I didn't. When I hear this rustle and I turn around, the keys are there and they're splayed, like so that I definitely don't miss them. And then I can feel like the hairs on my back and on my arms, like they're all standing up and I say, SubhanAllah. Because I know what happened there, right? It's that recognition. It's, I could easily have thought to myself, oh, those were there before. Or, you know, maybe I just missed them. But I know it, I saw that ledge a few seconds ago, or my eyes were in that area a few seconds ago. I saw no keys. That's why I turned around. And when I turned around, something told me to turn back again. Something made me turn back again, and those keys were there for me. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had answered my prayers. And that just like that, just in that little sliver of a little thing, that he had protected us. And he was always going to be there. And he was always going to be protecting us. And it was just a matter of turning to him. Not turning to others. Turning to him in your neediest of moments. And he would always be there to answer your prayers. The one thing that's really important to take away from the story is that we all have stories like this. We all have stories where this something like this has happened to us. This is just this is one small story in my life. You've all had this. The thing is is that maybe you accounted it for coincidence. Maybe you accounted it for you know something else. You didn't pay attention to it or you said it was because of yourself that this happened. What you need to recognize when these moments happen to you is that it's actually Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala that it's him, it's his protection, and he's looking out for you. And these are little miracles that ha are happening to all of us, around us all the time. There's malaika all around us all the time, helping us, guiding us, protecting us, saving us from car crashes, all kinds of things. And we have to be able to recognize that and be grateful for that. Sorry, you just hinted at something. Do you want to tell that story? Which one? Saving us from car crashes. Well, I'm, that's, I mean, I don't know if that's the story. Like, everybody's had that. Like, there's so many, I have, I have problems driving at night. And everybody knows that in my family. They don't, try not to let me drive at night because I fall asleep at the wheel. And if you know Chicago and you know Lakeshore Drive, there's many curves that happen. And there have been many times where I fell asleep on those curves. And I don't understand how I navigated that curve if I fell asleep. I should be dead. Because if you're just going in one direction without turning the wheel, you're going to crash into something. But somehow, I was able, even though I fell asleep, to navigate those turns and those curves. And I came back out alive. 
And that's not me. That's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protecting me. That's Malaika protecting me. That's people telling me, don't drive when you're, when it's late at night because you have a problem. Um, but again, this is stuff that happens to us all in our lives. It's just a matter of being able to recognize it and um, being grateful to the source, which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, I just, I'm trying to piece something together. I, you talk about, um, your father commenting on this, this himmat that you have from a very, um, young age and, um, you know, you, you go through breaks of your power through that. Um, you, uh, you're alone in Afghanistan without anyone to help you. Um, you, you know, you make your way into the Tribune, you eventually go on, um, head to head with Rahm Emanuel. Um, like where does this Himmah come from? Or is it, do you feel like you believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so it gets stronger or like, where is like the root of that? The Himmah? I think it's, um, I think it's, it's just that feeling of protection, right? I mean, I talked about the Afghan Mujahideen, but even before them, I've always, I've always felt that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was protecting me, or he was going to take care of me. From a very young age, even before my dad's trials and tribulations, I just, I just had this feeling. And so, part of that's taqwain, and, and over time, as I've seen it manifest in my life, where, you know, there's been so many times that I can tell you about where, you know, where if you look even at your own budget, things should not work out, should not be working out. You know, you're going to sh- fall short. And then you make a dua and somehow something comes from somewhere. And this is something that everybody has experienced. It's not just me. But those are moments that you reflect. And you should be reflecting on those moments. Where did that come from? That's not you. You know, that's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala making your, help, helping you make your ends meet. So... I think the himmat comes from knowing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is there and then getting confirmation throughout my life where I feel and I, and I, I see it and I feel his protection and then wanting that more than anything in the world. I think one of the things that I've learned through, through my life and maybe more so in my later years than in my earlier years is that when I've had challenges that I've had to go through, and I've had many, just I've been given many gifts that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given me, there's been challenges that have come with those. Um, I didn't ask, I didn't seek help necessarily from others. I actually sought help from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's just amazing the way that that help has come, come in. Like I, it would, it's not even stuff that I could have imagined or made dua for. It's so amazing. And so that all, it strengthens your iman. And then of course it gives you him, it gives you courage. Because you know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has your back. And if, if something's meant to be, it will happen. He'll be there and he'll guide you and he'll... I can't remember if I've talked about this, but in, even in the course of my reporting, you know, you talked about going head-to-head with Rahm Emanuel. I was covering Chicago Public Schools at that time. And it was more so than my reporting overseas where my life was in danger. I felt like when I was covering the Chicago public school system and I was going head to head with Rahm Emanuel, that was an extremely scary time for me because um, 
he was doing all these things within the city of Chicago. He had just been elected mayor. Um, he doesn't have a wonderful reputation to begin with in terms of being forthcoming. And um, he's got more of a reputation of being slick. Gosh, I guess I guess is the right Shady. word. Shady. Slick. We'll say slick because now we're getting into libelous territory. Slick. <laughs> so... So I kind of knew this when I got the beat and then he was elected mayor. And then very soon after he became mayor, he started putting in place different um, initiatives because he wanted to reform the education system. One thing was that the city had the first teacher strike in 25 years. The previous mayor had never had a strike. He'd always resolved it, but Rom wanted to go head to head with the teachers union. Second thing was, was that they he decided that he was going to close down all these schools. He said that all these schools were empty, a waste of resources, and he was going to shut them down. And then he was going to reform the education system by opening up new schools. Well, a lot of those new schools that he was suggesting were charters. And so that brought into, into the education system this whole debate about whether charters were good or not, whether they really were successful as they were touting themselves to be, or if it was all like a facade because they were kicking out the worst students. Um, and when he was closing down these, these, these schools, they were in some of the worst neighborhoods in the city. Worst neighborhoods, um, not just in terms of the worst schools, like worst neighborhoods in terms of violence. So he was shutting down schools in extremely poor um, neighborhoods and forcing kids to walk or take longer distances to go to school, to other schools. Um, and a lot of times that meant that they were actually crossing gang boundaries because the way Chicago works, and especially at that time, a lot of these these um, gang boundaries were street by street. So one street would be like gangster disciples, another one would be some other disciples. Like it was just, and, and there were subgroups upon subgroups of a main gang, like a gangster disciple. And so um, these kids were were basically walking through gang lines and they were basically risking their lives every day to go to these new schools that that Ron was orchestrating and he wasn't even thinking about the violence aspect of this. And then the third thing that he was doing was um, just reforms within um, the education system in terms of parameters that principals and educators were going to be judged on which were not necessarily there in the first place. Anyway, so he was bringing in all these initiatives. He was trying to reform the education system. And he was touting himself as this great reformer. He was going to do all these great things. But knowing the history of Chicago, a lot of things that he was suggesting seemed to me to be at odds with what he was saying he was going to do. And so a lot of my reporting was basically looking at the actual implications for the things that he was just basically railroading, right? He was just suggesting this wide swath of closed school closure as well. What does that mean on the ground itself? And so because I was going head to head with him in showing the holes in his initiatives, it meant that we were that I was getting into almost daily battles with with his staff, which also meant him. Um, and so as you remember, you were a young kid at that time, but you would you know, our day would begin at 7 a.m. or 6 a.m. with like nasty emails from um, from Chicago public schools and or people from the mayor's office saying, why did you write this? And this is inaccurate. And then we would basically you would help me type, you know, 
emails, pleasant emails, to the nasty emails that we were getting about why we were reporting the what, what we were reporting and why we had reported what we had reported and showing them the numbers and the stats. And that would begin like all day long experience where in the morning I would begin by fighting the story, of arguing about the story that I had already printed. And then somewhere midway through the day, I would start reporting on the new story that I'd had to do and start fighting with them about that story and the numbers that I was finding and they were disputing those numbers. And so I knew I was under the gun and I also knew that they were looking because of that, because of that behavior, I knew that they were watching me very, very closely and they were looking at uh, when I would mess up and I would say something inaccurate. And that meant that I was under extreme stress because, you know, statistic is a statistic. You get something wrong once, that's it. It's your reputation down the line because they'll make you do a correction or a clarification and they can also use that. And Ram did that in many occasions when I wrote stuff. He would come back the next day and say that the story the Tribune had printed was lies. So he was calling my credibility into question already. And so I was making dua like crazy at that time that please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, let me not, um, let me, let me be accurate in the work that I was doing and let me not make mistakes and uh, help me because the other thing that they were doing that was just oh, was so shady, um, but eventually it would actually let, lead me to leave journalism is because they would be dropping things in my lap. If they knew that I was working on something that was not good, they would give me something else or they would start something else to give to me and they want to get it, give it to me to basically occupy my time so I wouldn't work on the... Huh? Distraction. Distraction, yeah. So I wouldn't be working on the story that I was working on. Then they would also, against other parties, like when we were, they were fighting with certain unions, they would um, sneak documents to me. I can't tell you who was sneaking it, but they were sneaking documents to me. They were leaking them to me from different ways um, and from through different people. And it started getting me concerned because I was like, I felt like I was being used as a pawn. Um, I Once I got the document, I have to do the story. The document is sensitive enough that I have to, like, I can't ignore it, right? Um, so I have to do the story. But at the same time, who am I helping? Right. And so I felt like I was being used as a pawn and I didn't appreciate that. Um, and also it made me feel really concerned about the nature of the news business and how easily journalists can be used as pawns um, to get people's agendas across. And then remember I told you like my whole idea was like I came into journalism, I did the things that I was doing because I was, it was search for the truth, you know, giving voice to the people that don't have voices. And then if you're being used by other people who may have ulterior motives, then you're not really necessarily telling the truth. And plus, I couldn't see... Mind you, people that already have platforms and voices. Exactly. But they're using other, like, sly means to get other things across, right? Or to attack. Um, and then the other thing that they're doing, and this is not even on the local level, on, on the foreign level, the thing that really was worrying me was, like, um, this ability to use journalists as pawns and not knowing not knowing who is behind what like there's somebody who's giving you documents but who's behind that person who's giving you documents there's other people so how far does that stretch and who's 
whose cause are you aiding in the long run? That's the part that was really, it was troubling me um, because I couldn't no longer see the truth. It wasn't that apparent. There was too many um, underhanded people in the game and I couldn't see the actors behind the actors anymore. Okay, at the same time as all of this, um, and it was kind of funny that you mentioned earlier that um, 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 on a national level, Islam had kind of graduated from like this Isna Ikna to a more Sufi. We, 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 there's like a need for something deeper. Um, and I think you personally also felt that. Um, so at the same time as all this is going on, we start taking classes at Dar al-Qasim with Sheikh Amin. And can you just kind of talk about how that um, influenced your life? And you've talked many times about how there's specific talks that really changed your entire perspective on life and and how we're supposed to live as Muslims. All right. So here's where it hopefully becomes helpful to somebody. All this, all this jabbing for someone, hopefully for a reason. Um, I mean... With, because of my parents, we were always listening to Islamic scholars and I would pay attention. I would go to all the conferences. We would go to all the ISNA conferences, especially when they were in Chicago because it was like literally in our backyard. Um, and when I, I mean, most people, when you listen, you internalize and you try to change your way, right? Um, around this time, we actually moved from the city into the suburbs. We moved closer to family in the western suburbs in Chicago. And Hafiz Amin Khulwadiya, um, I had taken classes with him when I was much younger, as, as a younger person. Um, but the thing was, was that he was so deep, he was so philosophical, and I was so stupid, I was so dumb, and he would just go over my head. He would like talk about this stuff, and I just, I just could not... I couldn't pay attention. I think now that I look at it, I think the thing is I hadn't lived life yet. That's why. That's why I couldn't get him. And um, I had to live life a little bit. I had to become an adult and um, and become more mature. And then when we moved to the western suburbs, um, we heard that Hafiz Amin had um, opened up Dal Hasim and that, you know, that there was classes there and um there was uh that there was a tafsir every sunday morning and so at that point what i started doing with you and it wasn't like we weren't doing reading quran at home and stuff we were doing all that at home um but i wanted something more scholarly and so we would go every sunday morning and we would go to hafizamin's tafsirs and they were amazing it was one hour it was a few verses and he would go so deep he would basically help me put my he would help me set my mental state aright for the whole week like whatever he would say whatever the verse was in that Allah subhanahu like whatever Allah subhanahu's speech was in that verse it would set me on a course for the entire week and it became extremely important for me because as I was Maybe it was my own spiritual change that was going on. I'm not sure. Maybe it was what I was experiencing with the Ram stuff. I don't know. I felt like it was really important. Like if I missed it, it would set my week off all wrong. Like I needed to have the Sunday, the seer in the morning, and it would set me on a course for the rest of the week to basically engage with the world, 
right? It would put me in a certain uh, mind frame. And some of it was also like dealing with the world, right? It, like I can't give you any examples, but it would set me in terms of like um, how to see the world, how to view the world, sort of seeing people in power, right? And sort of like the the patterns with people in power and sort of acknowledging that and sort of in, in my own experiences when I'm dealing with people of power, realizing where that's coming from. Um, so it, it would happen mentally. And so then that just drew us in even more into the Dar al-Khasim world. And we took, we started taking more classes. We would go to Tarawi with them. Sometimes we would go to IFS, Islamic Foundation. But most of the time we were doing Tarawi with Sheikh Amin. And sort of being in his presence and learning from him. And even like the tafsir, it wasn't just him. Like there'd be like a lot of amazing scholars that would come in. Some we knew, like Dr. Mufarak Abdullah, but there's other people that were there because of the screen. I didn't know who was on the other side, but you could hear the questions that were coming. And those questions were so deep. They were so philosophical. So you, you knew that there were great minds that were participating in this tafsir. I really miss those. Um, so anyway, so that led to then one day he did this, um, he did this lecture and it was on, um, the women in the Quran and it was all the women that are cited in the Quran and basically looking at them and the examples of their lives. And if you remember the people in the class that day, there were people, there were women like me, you know, people that had grown up in the Isna era right? And um, a lot of us were educated women that had careers, etc. And through the course of these examples that he gave us, the takeaway was that in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's eyes, right? Oftentimes, it's not your status in the world or what you've achieved in the world in terms of your worldly successes. It's what you're doing spiritually in your own connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala looks at. And that was a big takeaway for me because it made me sort of start reflecting on myself. And yes, because of the call of Isna in the Muslim community, I had decided to become a journalist. And I felt as though I had done a lot of this for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and I had been given a lot of gifts in, in response to that. But was I really doing what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted of me? And I felt like, for me, like even like um, the prayers, I felt like a lot of times because I was so busy, either they were khada or they were rushed, and um, I was so tight on time, I was like so freaked out about work and meeting deadlines that I wasn't focusing on my prayer. I felt like spiritually speaking, I hadn't, invested in learning my deen and that I had put all my emphasis and all my eggs in the one basket called my career and maybe had not done as much as I needed to in terms of my of my uh what I'm going to take to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in terms of my religious actions and and then I started it basically made it, it was like a paradigm shift in my brain. Um, and I was like, maybe I'm not on the right course here. Maybe I focused too much on the dunya. And then with journalism too, I think a lot of it is, no matter 
what your goal and your perspective is, whether you're doing this for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, etc. At some point, by its very nature, journalists think of themselves as extremely smart. The nafs gets in the way. At some point, it's going to get in the way because you, you're, you're being tasked with looking at and evaluating and analyzing things, situations, and looking for things where there's holes. So you tend to consider yourself an intelligent, smart individual for being able to find those holes, right? Your nafs does get in the way at some point. You think highly of your intelligence. And um, then when your name is also attached with something that you produce, that's also a way for, um, you know, you're getting recognition for it. So again, is your, are you doing it really for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or is it, are you doing it for name recognition? And then the third part is, you're writing about people, you're writing about the voice, you're giving voice to the voiceless, but how much of what you really do is it really benefiting people? And in my case, especially when I was doing stuff in Chicago at the end, I felt as though I was just basically, you know, I just felt like I was going through this wheel, this motion where I was like turning, turning things out day after day talking about the the discrepancies within the education system and also socioeconomic wealth within Chicago, where people on the south side and the west side were already poor. There's tons of violence. Nobody cares about them. And then there's these initiatives that are being brought in, and it's going to make their lives even worse. And then the rest of the city didn't care. Like, I'd be churning these stories out, my own bosses would say to me, Noreen, when are you going to stop writing this stuff? Because I, ha- I would have a lot of fights with them about writing this stuff because I felt like this needed to be exposed. And at the same time, the rest of the city, I felt like, didn't care. Um, Chicago, because it's a segregated city, that poverty, those, those lines are, like, they're very stark lines. It's the south side, it's the west side, the downtown core is protected, everything north of the downtown core is protected right? They're like these little, it's just these bad areas. And as long as, as long as that violence isn't creeping into downtown and it's not creeping into the north side, nobody cares about it. Mm-hmm. And if you're in the suburbs, they could even care less about it. Right. So I was just writing this stuff in a vacuum that nobody was reading. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was just churning the wheels and I was doing something which in the end was not helping anybody. And um, did people really even care? I felt like, no, nobody really even cared. Um, the way things are in the world um, there's very few people that actually care about the people that have nothing and no matter what I'm writing or saying um, they're going to do very little to help them and so maybe I was wasting my time and um, I had gotten into this to do this service but maybe after a certain point Maybe my nafs has also gotten involved and I needed to work on my nafs and basically kind of kill it, crush it, and um, and then focus on my spiritual acts because I didn't know when I was going to die and I needed to sort of start focusing on the remainder of my life. So that led me to eventually leave journalism. And when I left journalism, it was a dramatic cut. We moved from Chicago to Toronto I put everything about journalism behind me. It's all in a box. 
for my grandkids. <laughs> I've tried very hard not to look at it. It's hard for me to remember. Like you're asking me questions, I'm remembering things. But it also almost feels like a different person. Mm. It doesn't feel like these are things that I did. Um, and I try not to talk about it too much because then I, I don't like it. This is why I don't like doing stuff like this because I feel like it, it gets the nuffs going again. And um, I prefer... Anyway, it's, it's done. That was a part of my life. It's in the past. And moving forward, I'm trying to uh, work on myself and getting myself ready uh, to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because that could happen at any minute. Um, I just want to backtrack for a sec before we get to you moving to Toronto. But um, I feel like one of the turning points, the other turning points while we were living in Chicago, um, and also one of your spiritual influences was your grandmother um, and her passing. I don't know if you want to talk about that. Yeah, my grandma was an amazing. I'm I'm so lucky. Alhamdulillah. Like I'm so lucky. As a woman, I've been able to experience so much of the world and meet so many amazing people through reporting. And you know, the amazing thing when when you report is you actually learn about people in their lives. You're not just asking them questions. When you're sitting down and you're getting to know them. You're asking about their lives, and you can actually see the arc of their lives. You can see where they begin and when they where they ended in many cases, and the things that had an impact on them. And so there's just so much wisdom that you can gain from people that you interview. But then I've been so blessed in my life from having like amazing people in my life who I've also learned from, and one of them was my was my nani, my grandma, um, just an amazing human being, and you know. I'm sure a big part of why she was so amazing was that she was an orphan. You know, she, at a very young age, she felt loss. She lost her mother. And then uh, very shortly thereafter, she lost her father. Um, and she had a difficult childhood, teenage years. And then sh- after she got married and settled in Pakistan and you know, her family, they had to leave India for Pakistan, like a lot of people ended up doing. My my um, my grandfather was from a family of, um, uh, they're like Sardar, they're like, they're, they're feudal lords. And because of that, and they had like vast amounts of land, there was concern and they already had had death threats against uh, the from from the Hindus at the time that they were going to kill like the eldest boys in the family. And so my great-grandfather had sent my grandfather and his brother to Pakistan with some money um, to start new lives there. And he, of course, you know, my grandmother and I think my mom at the time had moved with him. And so that early life in Karachi was, you know, they were dirt poor. They came from extremely rich, extremely rich background in, in Hyderabad in India to extremely poor and basically learning how to live like that, like as refugees, standing in line for food, living in a metal shack, like all of that. Like, So she had to deal with all that. And then she, her husband died at, when she was very young. She was only 38 when she became a widow. And so she had kids then who were also, who also became orphans. 
And um, what's amazing about my grandmother is that you, despite all these challenges, you never heard her say, oh, woe is me, right? She would always count her blessings. She would always thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for everything that he gave her. And then she took her challenges and she became like this amazing human being where people would turn to her and um, for guidance and for du'as. And um, when we, you and I, when we, when she was, when you were very young, we took her on her last trip to India. And, um, and uh, because we didn't know at the time that it was the last trip, but it was our trip to India with her because we wanted to see um, Hyderabad through her eyes and meet her relatives. And like I had gone there before, you had not gone there, but I wanted to do it with my grandma. And so we took her and ended up being her last trip. And I think at the time she knew it was her last trip because of this, some of the stuff that she had already started talking about when we were there with her. Um, but there's a story where we're like sitting in an airport in Mumbai and I think we... We, we left her for two seconds to go to the bathroom. And then when we come back, she's sitting with this woman who she doesn't know, who had just somehow, I don't know if my grandma walked up to her or she walked up to her. And the woman, like by the time we come back, it's like five minutes, 10 minutes later, my grandma knew her entire story, knew the fact that this woman was on her way to Umrah and was making, and had asked my grandma to make dua for her because she wasn't having a baby, but knew all like her, all her life's challenges. And my grandma was giving her nasiha and making dua for her. And I was just like amazed. Like, this is like a stranger, a total stranger. And this was like the story of my grandma's life. No matter where she went, um, total strangers would walk up to her and would just, you know, unfold. They would just like tell her all this stuff. And they would vent to her. And then she would, you know, tell them a little bit about her own life. Or she would give them some nasiha and give them some duas, make dua for them. And the amazing thing, I don't know, but I doubt it was she did it with this person, but the amazing thing is, especially with the people in Chicago that she would do this for, she would check up on them. We didn't realize this when my, when my grandma passed away and um, after her janazah, like people that we met, there are people that are coming out of all kinds of corners at that point. And we, the family didn't realize this, but she had like a list of people that she would call on a daily basis and check up on them. I was one of them. I used to get the 8 a.m. call. But she would call like these people, and and some of them were people that we didn't know. But these were just people that she had randomly met, and she was just checking in on them to make sure that they were okay. And they all came to the janazah, and all of them were like, you know, tell us about stuff that my grandma had done for them, or Nasiya that she had given to them. And so she was extremely influential for me because I guess it kind of tied into what Sheikh Amin had also told us at that lecture, was that a lot of the women in the Quran, they're not queens, they're not like power brokers, you know, a lot a lot of them are not, except for, you know, the Pharaoh's wife, but most of them were not. Most of them were very humble women that nobody knew anything about. But the thing was, was that in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala there was something. Right? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala recognized them for something. And what he recognized them for was that taqwa and that turning to him being grateful to him and um, having strong faith in him. And I think that's what I admired about my grandma too, because on the surface, if you met my grandmother, 
She didn't have a degree, you know. She, she, like I said, she had a very tough life. She was an orphan from a very young age. But somehow, this woman who didn't have maybe any of the intellectual things that people in the West would admire, you know, became such so influential to people around her and was such um, was of such benefit to people around her. And helped other people draw closer to La Sparadala. And, um, I don't know if you want to say, you can say no if you don't. But I think the other side of you, this Himma side, also comes from your other grandmother. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, my other grandma was also a very interesting character, too. Um, my other grandma also, my daddy, um, was also orphaned at a very young age. And um, not only was she orphaned, but she was married to somebody um, much older than her, than her. And um, sort of the challenges that come with that. And then he passed away. And so she was left with kids that she had to raise on her own. Um, again, supposedly born into wealth because her father was also one of these feudal lords but ended up not gaining anything from that because she was an orphan and then her money was distributed to others or others took it and so then she was left with no means to basically take care of her uh kids five kids i think my dad was 10 at the time and raise them educate them they all got an education they all left for the West. And my daddy, too, like, she was, like, known for, the, like, this amazing, like, really, like, her, I think her courage was much more physical. Like, they should tell us these stories of, like, basically, like, some of, like, that taking care of meant, like, you know, she, the house that she was living in, I guess, would have, like, a lot of cobras that would come in. There was, like, a cobra's nest. And she would, um... Oftentimes she would be like having to kill the cobras because those cobras would then attack, potentially attack her kids. So she was like known within her community for like killing like like dozens upon dozens of these cobras. She's like whacking them on the head. She's physically very strong. So maybe that's where the other side of that himmet comes from, that courage comes from, is from my daddy. But again, you know, these amazing people that are in our lives and we have so much to learn from them because I don't think I don't think we're there yet. We're so cocooned living in the West, um, where we really haven't dealt with challenges. And these people in our past, these grandparents, these uncles and aunts, who really have faced much more than we have, they you can learn so much of them by sitting down and talking to them. Um, and you, you'll notice a lot of times, like, you know, as much as those challenges are there, they have such firm dakhwa and belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, such gratitude for all the blessings. Like, you know, they're dealing with these challenges, but they're also, they're also, you know, um, they're grateful for all the blessings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given them and they're recognizing that. Um, okay, so before we went on the grandparents' uh, 
stories. Um, you had talked about how your next step in life was going to be crushing your nuts. <laughs> so where has that led you? <laughs> uh, nuts is a horrible thing. It's so hard. So part of crushing the nuts means, um, like I said, the journalism part, I put it away in a box and I try not to look at it. If people bring it up or if they find out about it, then I'll chat with them about it. In this case, you've asked me to talk about it, so I've talked about it. Um, it does feel far removed from me, that life. Um, it seems like a different person experienced that life and did all that stuff. I don't, I don't see myself as doing that. And I keep that box. Maybe I should burn it up, but maybe I, I keep that box because I feel like at some point my grandchildren will like to look through my notebooks and things, photos and stuff like that. Maybe they'll get some, something out of it. Um, but yes, so now, like now I, I feel like I'm in a phase of my life. I, I'm still working. Um, and I still struggle with that part, but I, I feel like the job that I've chosen allows me to, um, make my prayers give, give importance to my prayers. So one of the benefits of living in Canada is that, um, when you do go to, um, get a job, I've made it very clear that, um, I pray five times a day. And so when it's time to pray, I'm going to be finding a room and going and, and praying. Come on. And Jumma too. Oh my God, we didn't even talk about Jumma. So that was like so important to me. Like I never got to go to Jumma when I was a journalist. I was like I said, I was like struggling to get my two seconds in to pray. And now, alhamdulillah, like the the work that I do, I work at a university. And so because I work in a university setting, it means that I have access to two Jummas. And the Jummas also allow me to get some great scholars that I get to listen to on Fridays. And that makes me really happy. It brings extreme joy. And then um, because I work in a university setting, there's a little, whole bunch of kids that I work with. And I feel like I'm like the grandma. I can keep an eye on everybody. Grandma? Yeah. Why not mother? I don't know. <laughs> grandma. So I can keep an eye on everybody and sort of keep see if anybody's up to no good. And if they need help, I can sort of step in and help them if if they need help. Um and, and what it's also allowed me to do is that I have all this time now to take classes. And so I've been focusing on trying to do that as much as I possibly can and try to acquire as much knowledge uh, as possible. Because I grew up in Isna, you know, we call ourselves like Shanafi, like my fiqh was all messed up. Was it Shafi? Was it Hanafi? Was it nothing? Um, all my stuff was messed up. So part of uh, part of this journey is now also about fixing up parts of my, my, my practices and making sure that they are now aligned, um, in, with one madhab and, um, and then trying to get as much knowledge as possible. Um, I'm trying really hard to get some language in there as well, because at some point I would like to, um, go and learn properly um abroad but uh we'll see if we'll see how much life i have left um to be able to do that uh, i think that you know when you get to this phase in your life 
um, and you look back, you, you have to be grateful for all the things that Allah subhanahu wa has allowed you to experience. Um, I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm not sure. You, you wonder why Allah subhanahu wa gave you these opportunities to experience all these things, what might be around the corner. But you're also so grateful because I think it's allowed me to acquire a lot of wisdom in terms of how the world works, how power works, and how intellectual power works, um, which is really important. And what I've hoped to try to do is pass on some of that knowledge to you, to others, to other young people that I encounter. And um, hopefully that's that's of service. Um, and then we have to sort of wait and see what other opportunity that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows me to have. Um, and then the other question I had was, so as you've kind of um, been seeking knowledge and understanding the wisdoms of some of um, these like Islamic like fiqhi rulings um, that we have, what were some things that you kind of rebelled against in the past that kind of you were tested on? Or how did that like shape your journey? I don't know. I don't know if we should include this, but I talked about the whole Shanafi experience, the Isna Shanafi experience. And so one of the things, you know, I knew, I knew from the backdrop that traditionally women shouldn't be traveling unless without a mahram. Um, and there's, there's fiqhi guidelines in terms of like how far and for what purpose. Um, but when I got the opportunity to go abroad, I saw it. I saw those rulings as, oh, you know, that's in the past. Um, that doesn't, you don't need those requirements now. And we live in a modern age and I'm a woman that's educated in a modern age. I can take care of myself. And so I kind of, didn't rebel, but I discounted some of those rulings. And what I found in my adventures and my journeys were basically I was taught. Allah taught me. There were really some strong lessons there in terms of why those fiqh rulings are in place. And um, there were many situations where, you know, as a woman, I was um, helpless in... In, in situations where, you know, um, invulnerable, in situations where, you know, men tried there are many situations in which, um, you know, I was really helpless and vulnerable, unless my was taking care of me, but I felt very helpless and vulnerable in situations where, you know, I was attacked. Um, and it was because I didn't have anybody. You know, I didn't have my mehram. And um, and if you can think about it, you know, again, I'm a young woman um, traveling in this part of the world. And I remember in like this one scenario, like it was a rickshaw driver that, that attacked me because it was late at night and I was staying in someone's house. And I was coming back from the hotel where I was coming back from the hotel where other reporters were gathered to the house that I was staying at. And it was really late at night, like one or two. And in Pakistan, like who's out at one or two in the night driving around in a rickshaw? Well, it's a prostitute. And so the rickshaw driver thought that I was a prostitute. And so 
at the end of the ride, when I got out to pay him, he attacked me and I kicked him. And then I screamed and I ran to the doorway. And luckily he didn't come after me, but that was one scenario. There were other scenarios where, um, places that I was in, I had, I had fixers and translators there who did offer some protection, but you know, um, people tried to get into my room and luckily they were there and so whatever was going to happen didn't happen. Um, but I see the wisdom in it, right? You know, I mean, you think so highly of yourself and then you learn through your life and through experiences that Alaspana Dalla puts those rules in place for a reason. And um, yes, there's opportunities there. Yes, as women, we want those opportunities. But there's also fiqhi rulings there that are meant to protect us. And so you should pay heed. Mm-hmm. There are also other times where, like, you know, because of the nature of the work that I was doing, because I was working with a Western organization, I was in Pakistan. A lot of times that I was writing about the military, I was writing about the militants and their support from within the military. That also meant that I was targeted. And so there were a lot of journalists at the time. I'm not the only one where, you know, we were being watched by the Secret Service there, the ISI. You know, we all have found um, that we were, our rooms were being monitored, our phones were being monitored, people found bugs in their room. And um, I met a couple of security guys, intelligence guys later, who actually, like, knew far too much information about me because they actually had, like, they told me that they had files on me, so they were watching me. And it wasn't just them, right? I forgot to tell you, like, in the early days of 9-11, the FBI called the newsroom, and this became, like, a big thing. I think it became an editorial, too, at some point. I think the editor ended up calling the FBI and getting really mad at them. Anyway, the FBI called the newsroom to check up and see if I was actually um, a reporter with the Chicago Tribune in the early days after 9-11, yep. And so, so it was, it was intelligence services, both within America, but also in Pakistan that I was always fearful of. And I wasn't just out there on my own in one country, right? It's like both places that I was in, I had to be careful. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it it was, it was, especially in Pakistan, because there were journalists that were killed there. Daniel Pearl was killed there around the same time that I was there, I think. And, um, and there are many scenarios where I could easily have found myself in a situation where something bad could have happened to me because some of those people that he met with I had also like all of us had also met with some of those people as well and uh, because you know he he was just the one that got targeted Mm -hmm. and in the you asked me about like um training before we went and started covering the war and there was nothing there was nothing it wasn't until I came back after my three-month trip that the Tribune put me through wartime training. And that's when I realized that all these things that I had done in my first trip were all wrong. Like when when a military um, or like a militant group or whatever, like when they leave a certain area, right, and you go in, a lot of times what they've done in the past is that they have the trip wires um, that can basically are connected to explosive devices. So you walk through an area, you trip the wire and things explode. And that way, just as they're leaving, they can kill a few more people. 
And there were parts of Kandahar that I went through. I just roamed like, you know, like, like nobody's business. And I was going into homes that were owned by some of, that were lived in by some of these Arab fighters. And they could have easily done stuff to those homes. And I was picking up stuff and bringing them home. All of that, those, those are like stuff that potentially I could have been in very scary situations. Same thing with like, um, hijacking or, you know, there were check posts all over in that area in, in that time period when I was going back and forth, all that militant stuff, there's always check posts. You were always going through guarded areas. And any of those times where you stopped at a check post, most of the time we're trying to drive through and not stop. But anytime you were stopped by those check posts, those could be opportunities where somebody could kidnap you and people have been kidnapped before. Um, so those were all very scary situations. Again, I did it. It happened. And I did it without the knowledge that any of this stuff could happen. But I think in retrospect as a woman, it might have been wiser to do it perhaps with a Mehra or somebody who, who was there to protect. Unless Manato is there to protect, but like I said, those rules are in place for something, for a reason. Those rules are, those rules are in place for a reason. Looking back, is there anything um, you would have done differently or prioritized differently? Or any advice you would give to others? (sighs) You know, I said that my dad raised me as a son. (laughs) And some people in my family would say that that's a bad thing. Um, It was good in the sense that it made me really strong for everything that came at me in life. And it allowed me to experience everything that I did. It also meant that I had a challenging life because it's not easy to be able to balance everything. So if I had to do it over again, would I have been a journalist? Would I have focused so much on my career? Probably not. Maybe I would have tried a different path, but but who knows? Maybe this is the path that Allah subhanahu wa wanted me to take because I'm supposed to be learning things here. Hopefully Allah subhanahu accepts it and um, hopefully my battle with my nafs, I end up winning that battle. Inshallah. And, uh, and now it's more about the next generation and trying to make sure that they have the pieces in place to take this religion forward and... Um, have that strength of iman that maybe our generation may not have had, making sure that their iman is stronger because there's more challenges that will be coming their way and they need to be equipped for those challenges. And so maybe my focus now is making sure that that next generation um, understands what's coming for it and uh, be ready. Be prepared. All right, I think that's a good place to end. Jazakallah khair. Thank you for participating, even though I basically dragged you here. All right, Jazakallah khair for your questions. And uh alaikum to your audience. And hopefully you find something of benefit in this. <laughs> Man.
يا من سمي قبل يوم